0: I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family.
1: VTW Group. No purchase necessary. Avoid where prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. is a strange, strange sport. Bottom line, it's legalized assault. But it has given people throughout history a chance to better themselves and has always been the sport, if not of the dispossessed, of the lowest rung on any ladder.
0: Jack Johnson would tell a thousand stories of how he got started in a fight with a neighborhood bully ...in a run-in with a brutal railroad detective. And by taking part in one of the most humiliating creations of the Jim Crow era... ...the Battle Royal. A backroom spectacle in which six or eight or ten black boys, often blindfolded... ...were set to punching one another while drunken white men jeered them on. The last one standing got the prize. Usually, a fistful of tossed coins... Jack Johnson was often the last one standing. Among the newspapermen assigned to the big fight was the celebrity novelist Jack London. He had been a mill worker and a hobo, a convict, a sailor, and a luckless gold miner before becoming a writer. And he was a committed socialist. His solidarity with the working man, however, did not extend to black people. Personally, I'm with Burns all the way. He is a white man, and so am I. Naturally, I want to see the white man win. Put the case to Johnson and ask him if he were the spectator at a fight between a white man and a black man, which he would like to see win. Jack London.
1: The stadium was right outside of Sydney in a place called Rush Cutter's Bay. And they packed it with nary a blackface in it. And with the understanding that if it got out of hand, the local constabulary would
0: come in and stop the fight. The fight was scheduled for 23-minute rounds. As Johnson waited to be introduced some in the crowd jeered and cursed at him he showed no sign that he heard them bowing grandly in all directions even blowing kisses to the crowd
2: a left to grazing right and a solid left to the cheekbones dropped the champion it took only two minutes and six seconds but years of waiting And the new champion is inarticulate in victory.
3: When he won the heavyweight championship, he at least thought he would come home to a hero's welcome. And the plane landed in Philadelphia, and he looked out the window, and it was raining slightly. And he was hoping to see hundreds or maybe even thousands of people on the tarmac. You know, welcome home, sham, the usual thing that you see Happening with championship teams or fighters coming home and there was nobody. And as he stood in the door of the airplane, you know, this guy who was waiting for his great moment in life saw that nothing had happened, no one had come to greet him, and his shoulders just slumped. All the feeling of hope, of acceptance into the greater world vanished in an instant.
1: He knew then that he was consigned to that corner called Bad Man. It later played out. He moves to Denver and says, I would rather be a lamppost in Denver than mayor of Philadelphia. He hated the city that much for what it had done to him. In 1980,
4: you um, the elementary to get the WBC, WBA titles. Um, Have you been back to the UK and looking back on that experience, seeing how... Everyone, you know, there was a big riot after the fight. Right. Um, looking back on that, what were your thoughts?
5: And then it was, you know, here I was. I was the only champion. You wait for that day when you win the fight that you can raise your hand up and you receive the belt. You know what I mean? Wow.
1: And so that was taken away from me. Also, beyond the fact that I never had a chance to put the belt around my waist mm-hmm. at that time like every other champion. Every time I see another champion that that had the opportunity to mm-hmm. put that belt around, raise his hand up. It's a great feeling, and I'm an And then all of a sudden, Joe Frazier shoots out the closet and kicks Rocky's
6: ass. And the
7: <laughs> <laughs> Context of white supremacy. Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive. Information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Monday, April 5, 2021. So I have been told April 4. That was an important date yesterday. Our broadcast for today, the audio that you heard at the beginning. Lots of uh, moments from the cow's history. Let's see if I can do it quickly. Uh, So you heard uh, from the documentary, Unforgivable Blackness, uh, The Tragedy or the Rise and Fall of Jack Johnson. Uh, great effort uh, talking about his uh, journey to be heavyweight champion, uh, the early part of the 20th century. Uh, Bert Sugar uh, also talking about some of the racism he experienced. They are mentioned in the book we'll talk about today. Interestingly, they talk about the different the different narratives that have been given for how jack johnson began his career in pugilism and one of them the battle royal cow's <sighs> classic ralph ellison invisible man uh, uh we heard about uh, jack london infamous people in the bay area i am sure uh know about jack london square uh heard some of his writings his musings uh on Jack Johnson uh, fighting a white man. Uh, We heard from the documentary on Sonny Liston, the champion nobody wanted uh, when he defeats Floyd Patterson the first time around, first round and thinks he's going to be celebrated. Nope. The bad Negro prominent figure in the book. Uh, We heard then from the late great, in fact, marvelous Marvin Hagler uh, being asked about his triumph, uh, winning the uh, middleweight championship championship. Uh, in 1980 September uh, and the riot that ensued afterwards I think that was a running theme throughout things getting out of hand from the beginning of the century to the end things getting out of hand at a boxing contest should a black male competitor triumph but the late marvelous Marvin Hagler at the end All of these folks talked about in the book uh, that we will be discussing today. Wow, we have to admit our guest for today's program, a scholar and a gentleman. We were supposed to do the program last week, but I got confused and thinking I was confirming for the date that the program was actually going to be set for. So he could have totally just said, eh, got other things to do, waste my time. Total scholar and a gentleman. This is the second time he's been a guest on the program. And we actually talked about this book when he was with us last year. Uh, he said, in fact, he said, I just finished writing it. And I was like, wow, really? like, when is this going to be coming out? And he said it should be sometime next year. We were in the middle of the whole COVID-19 situation, which is still with us, unfortunately. And I said, oh, wow, that'll be something to look forward to, and it totally was. I said, this, is, this year has proved to be no better, no improvement at all, and I said, oh, wow, in the midst of a really ugly beginning to the spring, I got to read two great books. One of them was You are What Your Grandparents Ate, Judith Finlayson. She was with us on the program just a few days back. And then the book we are discussing today, The Bitter Sweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Lots of great information, not just about the sport or not even really about the sport itself, but about racism, white supremacy in the field of boxing so glad we could have him back on the program he holds the moore's professor of history and african-american studies at the university of houston he has written many 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 books probably got more coming out as we speak so thankful to have him back on the program joining us live dr gerald horn dr horn you with us sir thank you for inviting me Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Monday evening uh, for any of our listeners. If they missed you first time around or just folks, this might be their first time hearing from you. Uh, any info you'd like to share with folks about the work that you do?
2: Well, let's
8: see. That's an open-ended question. I mean, I'm a historian. I've written about uh, Southern Africa history, and U.S. imperialism of Southern Africa. I've written about Mexican Revolution, I've written about uh, Japan versus the United States in the context of race war, uh, ending with the atomic bombing of Japan in 1945. Uh, Let's see, I'm I'm working on a book now on United States and Northeast Africa, Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia. And, uh, you know, I've written books about Paul Robeson and other uh, forces of
7: the political left.
8: I don't
7: know. I could go on. Reading is more important than watching television. We read Dr. Horn's biography on Paul Robeson uh, on our book club. Go back in the archives. Lots of spectacular uh, information. Uh, I guess before we get to this book specifically, you're in Texas. When you were with us last time, uh, we spoke a little bit just about the COVID-19 response there. You all just suffered uh, major Energy crisis uh, as it relates to the storm. Uh, I just wanted to ask really quick your your assessment. What what is your assessment as a resident, maybe even a victim of all of this? Of what exactly caused the storm? What do you think should be done to make sure that sort of thing does not happen in Texas again?
8: Well, you know, it's oftentimes said about famine that they're they're basically a result of a political crisis, and I would say that this quote storm unquote that took place in February 2021 and led to the collapse of the electrical system and people freezing in the coal. In fact, the latest figure is that 200 people died as a result of this, quote, storm, unquote, which is really a result of a political crisis. That is just a reactionary conservative ideology that basically gives business a pass deregulation, the typical sort of Republican party nonsense uh, that passes for politics. And so uh, we were a victim. I was a victim. I was freezing in the dark down here in Texas. It was not very pleasant. It was not very pretty.
7: Wow. I am sorry to hear that. Uh, You you kept saying uh, storm and kind of putting that in quotes. Is there a better term that we should be using to describe this event?
8: It was a political catastrophe. That is to say that, I mean, there are places all over the world where the temperature drops below freezing, but the electrical system does not collapse, and the heating system does not collapse. It had collapsed here because basically the Republicans who are in power get campaign donations from the utilities, and therefore the utilities do not feel the it's necessary to weatherize their systems and so therefore they collapse when the temperature drops and so that's why i was putting storm in quotes i mean because it it was it was more than just a storm it was a political crisis
7: understood understood we some of our listeners were in texas they were victims as well like wow um wanted to make sure i got that in knowing you're in the area um We will pivot, uh, I guess, to The Bitter Sweet Science, Racism, Racketeering, and the Political Economy of Boxing. Uh, Fantastic book. I want to get into some of the details. But I guess the first question, uh, why this book? Like, do you have a personal affinity for boxing in some way, or was this just a a scholarly interest? Why did you write The Bittersweet Science?
8: Well, I was looking to do a book on sports, and actually – My first instinct was to do a book on baseball, but I couldn't get it together in in terms of the topic, and, you know, I've done books on music, on jazz, I've, I've done books on film, Hollywood, and it finally occurred to me that boxing might be the way to go, not least because there are some very good boxing archives, that is to say, places that compile records of uh, the sport at Notre Dame, University of Notre Dame in South Bend, Indiana at uh, Brooklyn college, believe it or not, in Brooklyn, New York. And then boxing is a sport that's been subjected to regulation. So the New York state athletic commission in Albany, uh, the it's counterpart in California and Sacramento. I mean, there, there are athletic commissions, boxing regulators all over the country. Um I visited the ones in Arizona, Minnesota, Florida, Indiana, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, and a few other states. And so that gave me the raw material through which I could uh compile and write this book.
7: Gentleman and a scholar. I see. I see the archives, the data so that you can go and you can, the footnotes are extraordinary uh, for the text as you can just kind of go through and glance down and pick up uh, lots of information. probably see some of the places that he visited uh, to get some of the material to compile this work. Uh, it seems to me one of the major themes uh, in this book is masculinity. Uh, you've, I mean, boxing, we're certainly talking about a, a male dominated sport uh, frequently, not always, but a male-dominated audience, a homosocial environment, uh, and the role, particularly the role of the heavyweight champion and, and what that's supposed to signal about uh, virility and manhood in this part of the world and maybe even globally. Uh, can you talk about masculinity as you describe it in the text, The Bittersweet Science?
8: Well, there's an the intersection of gender and race. As I point out in the book, historically, there's been a special persecution of black men in particular. There's been a particular defamation, uh, libeling and slandering of black men. That is to say, they were described by their detractors as not being so-called real men because so-called real men, quote, do not allow themselves to be enslaved, unquote or, quote, do not allow themselves to be subjected to Jim Crow, unquote. And the idea that was put forward by the detractors of black men is that black men were basically less than men. They were fundamentally yellow-bellied cowed. And so obviously this is a falsehood, but just because it's a falsehood doesn't mean that it did not take flight and have a certain kind of grip on the imagination of many Uh,
6: including many
8: black men, I'm afraid to say. So what happens is that boxing becomes a vehicle through which black men can prove their masculinity, can prove that they're real men by using their fists. And as your setup piece suggested, it was very interesting that during the time of slavery that uh, many black men were put in the ring with other black men in these battle royals where you would be blindfolded and whoever was able to emerge triumphant got a prize but even before that if you go back to the shores of Africa interestingly enough you see various kinds of martial arts developing that is congruent with the rise of the African slave tree that only not only takes place in madagascar in southeastern africa the gigantic island off the coast of southeastern africa which had been a particular node for the unlimited african slave trade but if you go to youtube uh, as we speak and type in capo era you'll be able to see a kind of martial arts come ballet that was popularized in brazil which of course had the largest population of enslaved africans in the Americas, uh, but probably had its origins in Angola, which had been a a hunting ground for the enslaved going back hundreds of years. And it was a kind of way for black people without weapons to defend themselves through the use of their hands and fists. So historically there had been this, combative tradition amongst Black people, understandably, because you were oftentimes faced with these potential enslavers. And out of this combination of combativeness and masculinity uh, comes what is could fairly be regarded as a kind of expertise when it comes to boxing.
7: Wow. That is a major theme in the book, uh, unless I misread, masculinity. One, but then, as you point out, this idea of uh, black males, and in fact, uh, and I want to talk about this specifically later. have some of the great quotes you have in the book, but uh, non-white males in general, any males who are not accepted as white, although that can change for some folks depending on how dark they are. Uh, this can boxing and fighting back in general, as you said, capoeira and these other forms of uh, self-defense. Uh, are used hey to defend myself and then this may be parlayed into a career for lots of non-white people in a vehicle to prove their manhood individually and collectively yes we are men we should be accepted Uh, some are more successful at this than others Um, I just with this whole notion of masculinity uh, one of our uh, previous guests uh, she, she was talking about the notion of black male privilege quotes and she was citing that one of the examples or pieces of evidence of black male privilege is professional sports. And she said, the fact that you have a venue like professional boxing, that was one she mentioned specifically where you have uh, the opportunity for a Floyd Mayweather, someone who can make hundreds of millions of dollars. And some of the folks that you talk about in the book, sugar Ray Leonard and Muhammad Ali make millions of dollars that that's generally not afforded for females. And you even talk about that to some degree in the book uh, with What you write about, do you think that's... Or just what are your thoughts on that? Boxing being one piece of evidence for the notion of black male privilege.
8: Well, I guess it depends on how you define privilege. I mean, I I think it's fair to say that uh, black men have been able to make more in the boxing ring than black women have, although there, there have been a spate of leading black women boxers. And obviously that has something to do with a certain kind of male chauvinism, just like if you look at the NCAA basketball championships, uh, historically, you know, there was just this controversy about how the women's uh, dressing rooms and, uh, did not have sufficient equipment comparable to the men's dressing rooms in Indianapolis, for example, where the men were playing. So I guess there's something to that, but of course, you know, it's a very tricky area because you could always flip that over and talk about uh, the fact that black men are more subject to being killed by the police, as the Derek Chauvin trial in Minneapolis suggests, more likely to be subject to the death penalty, uh, more likely to be incarcerated. So, you know, these are very tricky concepts.
7: I have the same uh, three letter response uh, that I had. I think this was 2016 when we were having this discussion about black male privilege and boxing was professional boxing and Floyd Mayweather uh, were presented uh, as evidence of black male privilege. My three letter response was C T E. Uh, Moving to, I guess a second comport. I didn't really think as much. Maybe I'm not informed about the importance of racketeering the mafia gangsterism uh in the history of america i guess that's something i'm not well versed in uh even though i'm a little bit better after reading your book the subtitle is racism racketeering and the political economy of boxing why is racketeering uh right in the center of this project
8: well racketeering has been a particular theme of mine if you look at my book on jazz, that deals with racketeering because the racketeers oftentimes operate at the clubs where the musicians were playing. If you look at my book on Hollywood, uh, gangsters play a critical role in terms of dominating the unions that were prevalent in Hollywood. In fact, the gangsters and organized crime still play a dominant role in the unions uh, that uh, are working at the studios, the Hollywood studios. And then actually, if you look at the African slave trade, which has also been a a topic of mine, uh, particularly after the African slave trade is legalized, then it's fair to say that we're talking about human traffickers and we're talking about organized crime. So organized crime has been a particular theme of mine to the point where I, I think it would not be unfair to suggest that you could have... a a yellow do not cross tape across the borders of the United States from the Atlantic to the Pacific, because there's really just one big crime scene uh, from the inception of settler colonialism in the late 1500s. And certainly this is true for boxing uh, because as one of the characters in the book suggests, uh, boxing is so morally ch- and ethically challenged that, you probably should hold the matches, the bouts, in sewers, except there's probably not enough headroom. And certainly even Hollywood has glimpsed the point that boxers who are tremendously exploited oftentimes are exploited by gangsters. I mean, uh, that's been a theme of a a, a number of uh, very riveting uh, movies i mean think of Ref- Requ- requiem for a heavyweight for example and it's based upon reality and uh, these boxers oftentimes are exploited shamelessly and certainly that's been the case for black
2: boxers in particular
7: context of white supremacy our guest dr gerald horn uh haven't seen that one i have to check that one out uh Speaking of gangsters, so many fascinating tidbits uh, in Dr. Horn's book, The Bitter Sweet Science. This is on page 98, the chapter, The Brown Bomber Soars. You write, as Cohen's presence suggested, sunny Southern California was also becoming a magnet. For prize fighters, icons of the film industry often felt the need for bodyguards and who better to serve in this role than a man who has demonstrated his mettle publicly for pay. Mae West, the oft-described blonde bombshell, chose Johnny Ingersano, a boxer, as her muscle. She had a fondness for men of this category, becoming quite friendly with William gorilla jones a high caliber negro middleweight and when strident objection arose to his presence not least from her own circle she bought a building that housed him and hired his parents they had met in 1934 and she served as his manager becoming one of a number of euro american women playing a central role in the careers of negro boxers Jones was a kind of reincarnation of battling Siki in his flashiness. He had a pet lion that sported a diamond-studded collar. They would remain friends until his death. West also claimed that her influence on Arnie Madden, Madden, a top mobster, led to the bout between Joe Lewis and James Braddock in 1937, which transformed the sport. This was consistent with her bias toward Negro boxers including featherweight Chalky Wright whom she hired as her driver. He also packed a pistol which proved to be of little avail when he died under suspicious circumstances. It was murder said West. Check the footnotes. Check the footnotes. But I thought wow like it's filled with passages like that which kind of encapsulate everything you just said the Hollywood connection, you got the yellow crime tape, exploitation of black fighters, like, more would you like to add Dr. Uh, Gerald Horn?
8: Well you mentioned battling Siki and maybe some of the listeners were not familiar with this black boxer whose roots were in Senegal and he was one of a, a string of leading fighters from the continent the continent itself has developed a number of leading black boxers as well think of uh, azuma nelson from ghana uh, john mugabe of uganda for example in battling siki from senegal uh, who was really knocking them out in new york in the early 1920s he also died under very mysterious circumstances i'm afraid to say which has been the cruel fate of boxers too numerous to mention and I should also say that there are two angles to this story. One angle presents the bold names, which your listeners may be familiar with, Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, Floyd Mayerweather, uh, et cetera. And then there are the boxers too numerous to mention who did not achieve fame and fortune, who wound up to use your term, with CTE, wound up with brain damage, wound up homeless, wound up in an early grave, wound up penniless. And this is the other aspect of the sport that oftentimes gets short shrift, although I think it's fair to say that there are many, many, many more in the latter category than in the former category.
7: Absolutely. Even some of the ones who do achieve fame and glory still end up in that enormous category of being penniless, exploited, brain dead. Joe Lewis, many, 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 many Joe Frazier, many, many Uh, with Mae West, though. I I mean, I'm not super informed about things, but I was totally clueless about her involvement in boxing. And then to even step back at this, We're talking before World War Two. 1930s to think of a white woman being involved with black male boxers like that was even hard for me to to grasp like is that something that's wide known people talk about Mae West in her film prowess do people talk about her involvement in professional boxing
8: well it's hard to say Mae May West is largely forgotten uh it's only a, a few who might remember her film stardom might remember her as a kind of precursor and predecessor of Marilyn Monroe, you may be familiar with, or a precursor and predecessor, perhaps of today's Nicole Kidman, that is to say the proverbial blonde bombshell. Uh, but uh, she was a rather unique character in, in that regard. And there there is a biography of, of Mae West by the historian Jill Watts, which I would recommend for those who are interested in more detail about her life.
7: Hmm. Okay. Uh, You also talk about Jack London, uh, who (laughs) I lived in the Bay area and they have Jack London square and lots of, you know, markers and regard for his literary work. uh, And, I didn't think, oh, wow, this is someone who endorsed racism, white supremacy, which you seem to state pretty uh, explicitly in the text. Let's see, this is on page 40, and I included a little snippet in the introduction uh, from the documentary Unforgivable uh, Blackness, where he's talking about uh, Jack Johnson. Uh, let's see if I get the snippet. This is page 40 from the Go West Young Negro. Uh, let me make sure. Doo, doo,
6: doo, doo, doo.
7: This was the backdrop to Gans' pivotal 1906 bout <clears throat> with Danish born Oscar battling Nelson, referred to affectionately as the abysmal brute by the paradigmatic racist socialist Jack London. Nelson boastfully proclaimed before confronting Gans during my 12 busy years of fighting, I have met just five different Negroes out of a string of nearly 100 battles I feel proud of stating no colored man ever conquered me though in a casual epithet he referred to one of those opponents as a pretty tough coon. In his memoir this self-proclaimed coon hunter included a cartoon of battling Nelson's colored morgue with stereotype images of four recumbent negroes when he defeated one of his unfortunate negro opponents the band played all coons look alike to me i actually looked and they have this song on youtube if you want to check it out um, can you give us a word jack london you seem uh explicit unequivocal racist jack london
8: well, Jack London represents a very tragic and unfortunate ideological trend, which should not be unfamiliar to us in the United States of America. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that there has been a trend, fortunately not a widespread trend, that is to say a widespread trend of the socialist movement, but there has been a trend which is represented uh, in Jack London's ideological counterparts in pre-independent South Africa, where about 100 years ago, certain so-called socialists were putting forward the line, workers of the world unite for white South Africa. Or even if you look at apartheid, which is implanted in South Africa in 1948, part of the purpose was to uplift the Afrikaner poor by degrading and grinding into the dust the black majority, and letting the former basically leech off of the latter. Or even if you look at the United States of America, uh, the part of the so-called American dream oftentimes has been based upon poor Europeans getting off the boat and being able to get a grub state in terms of the land of Native Americans. I mean, that was what the Homestead Act was all about, which was enacted in the early 1860s whereby uh, tens of thousands of acres of Native American land was turned over to these Europeans just off the boat. I mean, in some ways, you could say that is the paradigmatic expression of white supremacy, the Homestead Act, which by the way, I'm afraid to say that certain so-called progressive forces salute the Homestead Act because they see it as a sort of wealth redistribution Uh, But, of course, (laughs) it's wealth redistribution from Native Americans to these Europeans. So, Jack Johnson is not terribly unique. Uh, He was not terribly unique in terms of his cheering against Jack Johnson or his cheering against Joe Gans, G-A-N-S, who you were just uh, referring to in that passage, who in some ways was the equivalent of a Henry Armstrong or a Sugar Ray Leonard, that is to say, a sub heavyweight boxer, because the heavyweight boxers get most of the publicity. That is to say, Jack Johnson, Joe Lewis, Muhammad Ali, Sonny Liston, etc. Now, then the sub heavyweights, be they Joe Gans or Henry Armstrong or uh, Sugar Ray Robinson, Sugar Ray Leonard, Floyd Mayweather, oftentimes they are well compensated but oftentimes don't get as much publicity as the heavyweights.
7: That's an important point that you talk about with things getting out of hand. Uh, In fact, we have one of the rare incidents where things did get out of hand, but it was not with the heavyweights. Marvelous Marvin Hagler, a middleweight uh, fighting Alan Minter, 1980, where things got out of hand. But you talk about that again, going back to manhood, where the heavyweight division, that's really about manhood and masculinity. Once you get down and it's smaller weight, that's not quite as important. Like we can have a black person fight there, but heavyweight that's really, really captures the attention. And I think also an important point for our listeners, you talk about boxing is not as important in the United States now, as it was at the time of Jack Johnson at the time of Muhammad Ali at the time of Joe Lewis, just having presidents. In fact, there's a video where John F. Kennedy, President John F. Kennedy, tells Floyd Patterson, you should fight Sonny Liston. You should fight him and beat him. It would be good for a bad Negro. You should fight him and beat him, like having Presidents, you talk about that, presidents who, Nelson Mandela being a boxer, but presidents who are paying all this attention and watching these fights and having these uh, fighters come to the White House and their prominent spokesmen and Max Smelling, the German fighter who beat Joe Lewis the first time around. He's posing with Adolf Hitler and a national hero. Just can you talk about the huge prominence that boxing had at one point in the world and especially in the U.S.?
8: Well, I I think that. As your earlier comment suggests, or one of the people who you played in that opening tape suggested, oftentimes boxing is the sport of the dispossessed. And I think that's what's happened is that as black people in the United States have been able to batter down the walls of Jim Crow and create more opportunity, there is less of an emphasis up on boxing, and then also as there has been less self-doubt about our masculinity, where we had to prove that we could ascend to be the emperor of masculinity, to use the term affixed to the heavyweight champion, well, then there's less of a need to demonstrate one's mettle in the ring. And then likewise, I think a lot of the masculine energy uh, has been transferred to other sports. Particularly professional football, which is a sport of controlled aggression, which is a sport that is an expression of controlled violence, and where 70% plus of the performers, of the athletes, happen to be of African descent, and of course, most of the star players as well. And that that has been a sort of an outlet for masculinity, and as you know, a professional football, even though it has been around for about 100 years, it really doesn't begin to take off until, I guess, maybe the, the late 1950s with the rise of the Baltimore Coats and then the TV contracts that are able to negotiate in the 1960s. And so, therefore, you begin to see more black uh, athletes migrate into that field, just like you see more black athletes and black men in particular migrate into basketball. Uh, which in its origins did not necessarily welcome uh, black players, but I think it's fair to say that it's a sport that today is dominated by black players. And so once again, the kind of expressions of masculinity can now be expressed on the basketball court and not just in the boxing ring
7: context of white supremacy Dr. Gerald Horn Uh, this is on page 94 and just avenues for acceptance what I said earlier I thought this was really fascinating because you come back to this a few times in the text this notion Uh, in fact Dr. Welsing we talk about having in a system of white supremacy there is a color hierarchy the darker you are if you are classified as a black person you will be treated worse and talking about for folks who are so-called Italian Americans Jewish Americans who are not accepted as white at the beginning of the 20th century that can change uh, And you write on page uh, 94 <clears throat> often a Jewish American fighter could change his name dispense with wearing the Star of David on his trunks and could then possibly elude the harsh edge of anti-Semitism melanin rich Negroes by and large did not have this option after the revenues for boxing rose name changing became endemic which in a sense was a guidepost on the centuries-long road to whiteness or acceptance of ostensible European outliers into the wider family of white America to be sure Italian American prize fighters and others who faced the sting of bigotry also had available such an escape hatch. In one meeting, the New York State Athletic Commission entertained the petition from Abraham Lieberman to adopt the ring name of Artie O'Leary and J. William Ginzardi became Johnny Williams. And you give a lengthy list of people who did this same sort of uh, metamorphosis and in fact even give uh, i'll just give one little snippet before i get your response uh you go on having said that it is similarly striking how certain boxers sought to appropriate the identity of famed negro punchers anthony Camparlongo became italian joe gans and cyril quentin became panama joe gans then there was baby Joe Gans uh, and they have all the uh, these others where they're kind of even seems paying homage uh, to some of these black fighters. But just can you talk about this process of how some of these uh, folks who are not black, but not quite accepted as white, they could through boxing become accepted as white.
8: Well, it's interesting when you were talking about these Euro Americans adopting the name Joe Gans, who was this famed black fighter. I'm still trying to figure that one out. Uh, Why they chose to identify with this black boxer. Maybe it wasn't identifying with the black boxer. Maybe it wasn't homage to the black boxer. Maybe it was a kind of appropriation. Uh, That is to say, it's like the the Elvis Presley trope, where if you don't uh, like Lewis Jordan or Chuck Berry doing this music, uh, enjoy. Elvis Presley doing this music. I'm still trying to figure it out. But in any case, with regard to uh, Jewish American boxers in particular, uh, when you look at the oral histories of many of these Jewish American boxers, they oftentimes say that growing up in neighborhoods that were dominated by Irish Americans and Italian Americans, they had to use their fists to, once they left their door to go to school and that this helped to engender in them a desire to excel in the boxing ring. And interestingly enough, uh, in the concentration camps of Eastern Europe administered by the Nazis, the Nazis oftentimes for their entertainment uh, liked to see these Jewish American, or Jewish men, I should say, uh, beat up on each other. But we all know that after 1945 and the defeat of Hitlerism and fascism, uh, there was, and with the rise of the civil rights movement too, I should add, there was a kind of social promotion of Jewish American men in particular. And it was not as necessary for them to display their metal in the ring. And in fact, many of them became disproportionately uh, managers, referees, Or in the case of Bob Arum, who is still in the land of the living, uh, the top promoter uh, of boxing. Of course, he's in his late 80s, along with uh, Don King, uh, who is that rare breed of of, a black American who was able to excel in the sport outside of the ring. And of course, Bob Arum is still promoting fights uh, in his late 80s and from his perch in Las Vegas. And so in, in some senses, it, it does track to a degree uh, the trajectory of black American boxes, although, as I said, obviously those who happen to be melanin-rich uh, have a uh, more difficult road to hold, to use that expression. And, however, it remains fair to suggest that just like you had a migration of black americans uh, eventually out of the boxing ring into other avenues as the walls of jim crow began to erode you had a similar process and trajectory for a number of jewish american men who of course were able to uh, to rise even higher on the socioeconomic ladder because they could be defined as quote white unquote
7: context of white supremacy I'm looking at the rest of uh, the passage that I was reading from on page 95 uh, and I stopped the very next sentence it's a question mark when Florine Petta became battling Johnson was this a nod to the Galvestonian question mark as you said still thinking about it so that yeah like you said with Elvis Presley that is uh, more pondering Uh, on this same kind of theme Uh, And then the Hollywood note, like you said, some of your interests converging on page 87, uh, you write the brown bomber. Joe Lewis was not the only Negro thumper who entered the spotlight in the 1930s. There were others and their very presence was a solvent applied to traditional notions of masculinity, then white supremacy. This also delivered more income into the pockets of Negro families reeling from the ravages of the Great Depression. Among these stellar fighters was Henry Armstrong, born as Henry Jackson, on the 12th day of the 12th month in 1912 in Columbus, Mississippi. Like many from that part of the Magnolia State, including my parents, he migrated to St. Louis and attended the elementary school named after the man who led the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture then vashon high school the alma mater of my older brother and sister where he graduated in three and a half years garlanded with the honor of being designated poet laureate of his graduating class yet he quickly found that society was hardly interested in literary talent so he became a boxer and then became the only champion to hold three titles simultaneously all sub-heavyweight of, there it is again, sub-heavyweight, of course. Yet, like Lewis, who had to fork over future earnings in order to get a shot at the title, Armstrong had his managerial contract sold slave-style to Hollywood personalities George Raft, who had strong gangster ties, and Al Jolson. Naturally, he had no veto over this transaction that governed his future. I was stunned on multiple levels, the slave transaction for Mr. Armstrong. But then I said, Al Jolson, like blackface Al Jolson, that's the same person that we're talking about, uh, Dr. Horn. I'm afraid so. I mean, you can go
8: online now and see him performing in the 1927 movie, The Jazz Singer, which is a very interesting movie to deconstruct, by the way. And he was a notorious uh, blackface performer. By blackface, we're talking about him putting on cork or some sort of black paste on his face, except for his uh, pale lips, and then imitating, allegedly, how a black person would perform. And then George Raff is one of the many, uh, many uh, performers, actors. Who had ties to organized crime, and in fact, that particular connection is so notorious. Uh, you might have seen the movie with John Travolta, Get Shorty, uh, which really is a sort of openly and notoriously talks about all of these close ties between making movies and um, and uh, organized crime. And in fact, there's another movie, uh, State of Greats, with Sean Penn, which also talks about the very close ties between uh, making movies and organized crime. And so part of the larger theme that I'm bringing to you is that in terms of entertainment, not only in the United States, I would say it's a transnational trend, it tends to attract these organized crime figures. And I think one of the reasons is that entertainment oftentimes, at least before the modern era, it oftentimes involved cash at the box office. Uh, Cash when you pay to enter a boxing match. Cash when you pay to go to the movies. uh, Cash when you go to a jazz club. And when you accumulate a good deal of cash, it facilitates money laundering. What that means is that when you go to the bank to deposit this cash, you can include within it the proceeds of your ill-gotten gains. Of drug dealing, for example, or bootleg liquor, for example. And here's a a tip to the would be gangsters in your audience. You should try to avoid uh, depositing more than, say, I would say $9,000 at a time in cash because banks are obligated to report uh, when you report to the government uh, when you deposit, I think it's up to $10,000. So you should stay well below that
7: uh, ceiling we don't we don't have gangsters uh, listening to the context of white supremacy, but we thank you for the uh tip. We will be mild keep it under ten thousand under ten thousand if you have to make a cash deposit of some sort. no alerts at the uh and although we did just have a victim, she just tried to get a thousand dollars, and that apparently sent off alarm so whew, it's tough for black people um with the uh I, and just, I just I'm not I want to make sure I'm not incorrect. Is this another example with Al Jolson of someone who was not accepted as white, and this is a part of their acceptance as white? I guess on two tiers, having slave contracts where you can purchase a Henry Armstrong, and you know you're now going to be my fighter, and we take whatever purse and control your career, and the blackface. Is that another example of someone coming to this area and being able to some late being accepted as white?
8: Well, I think that's true to a certain extent. I think if if you look at the jazz singer in particular, and you analyze that film, in fact, uh, this late historian at UC Berkeley did a whole book uh, in which the jazz singer was the centerpiece. It really talks about the jazz singer as, as being a landmark on the Jewish American quest for whiteness. And of course, the quest for whiteness oftentimes involves a simultaneous dem- denigration of blackness, which of course you see clearly and and, and also a, a sort of uh, not only the, the guy post on the road to whiteness but so called u s nationality involves a denigration of blackness because the, the Al Joseph character in the jazz singer uh, rather than op for being a performer solely in Jewish circles, he decides to migrate to being a performer in wider U.S. circles. And that means that he adopts blackface. So it's a very interesting uh, metaphor, if you like. And the metaphor is then uh, in some ways uh, ratified uh, when he assumes the contract of henry armstrong and of course it's it's not just these boxers who are traded quote slave-like unquote uh from one so-called owner to another i mean think about it i mean look at these professional athletes you can be traded from houston to milwaukee basically it's almost as if the host of cows can be traded from wherever you are what city are you in by the way uh, Seattle, Washington. So you can be traded from Seattle, Washington for a radio host in New York City, for example. I mean, it, it, it sounds ludicrous, but you still have people in twenty twenty one who are subjected to that sort of
6: outrage.
7: Mm. Wow. Uh, I wanna before I get to some of our callers, two quickens, I'm gonna give them the number seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred, the code. Five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Doctor Horn has dropped a massive film list on us. I did not expect that. We got State of Grace and Get Shorty and Jazz. And like uh, quite a film list already. Um, Homo, Ira- are you familiar uh, with the book The Delectable Negro? Homo eroticism. oh yeah oh yeah. a gentleman and a scholar dr <laughs> gerald horn okay on page 235 uh you write <clears throat> there were native american grapplers portrayed insensitively also especially chief don eagle who was not able to subdue gorgeous george though the victor intentionally subverted traditional notions of masculinity with his preening his strut his affect, his wardrobe, his flashy, blonde coiffure, his dramatic use of perfume, or should I say cologne. The gorgeous one was an early, cowardly villain, a recurrent trope in the sport, in quotes, and possibly a stand-in for how settler colonialism was built. Hmm. He was also, oh, he also was passing in that he had a heterosexual marriage and two children whom he shielded from the public so as not to disrupt his image residing in the 1960s in a fashionable abode at 8272 sunset boulevard in los angeles he ran afoul of regulators when his routine a woman preceding him into the ring she disinfects it for me he explained was flummoxed since no girls are allowed in the ring in Brooklyn. Homosocial environment, I said before. Still, he appeared to subvert masculinity, a punishing grappler who seemed to be effeminate. Just as Ali and other punchers continued to contradict the continually discredited idea that black men were somehow cowardly. Like Ali, who emulated him, he also wrestled with alim- alimony between the eternal revenue and my ex-wife whom I am supporting and my children, he felt his income was draining. The sport may have been more sexually fluid than it appeared at first glance. The writer Ishmael Reed has referred to the bisexuality of Sugar Ray Robinson while revealing that the broadcaster Howard Cosell made like-minded sexualized overtures to Ali's tormentor larry holmes many different things that could be pointed out i guess homoeroticism that's my big question but i have to pause to go back to to gorgeous george now wait a minute now uh let me can you can you break this down for us you write the gorgeous one was an early cowardly villain a recurrent trope in the sport and possibly a stand-in for how settler colonialism was built can you break that down for us a bit dr horn
8: Well, when I wrote that sentence, I was thinking of all of these different... (laughs) It's almost a cliché. As a matter of fact, it's almost a cliché where the settlers invite Native Americans to a meeting to smoke the peace pipe, and then they fall upon them and kill them. I mean, that's a cowardly act, and it's a villainous act. Interestingly enough, Toussaint Louverture... The grandest abolitionist of them all, the founder of revolutionary Haiti, that's what happened to him circa 1802 when he was supposed to be having a powwow with the French invaders. And uh, when he comes to the meeting, they grab him and bundle him off to a prison in the Alps where he winds up dying, the Alps of Europe, of course. So that's what I meant by this notion of of a, a, a cowardly villain. And interestingly enough, if I'm not mistaken, speaking of movies, uh, One Night in Miami, the movie that deals mm. with Ali, Sam Cooke, Malcolm X, Jim Brown, there's a reference to Muhammad Ali and Gorgeous George, if I'm not mistaken. And interestingly enough, to, to take this a step further, uh, perhaps The apex or nadir of this question of uh, homosocial environments or masculinity going amok takes place in 1962 when the fighter Emil Griffith with roots in the Virgin Islands kills Benny Perrette, who has roots in Cuba, in the ring in Madison Square Garden, executes him. Uh, methodically, and this is after Benny Perret had charged that uh, Emil Griffith was homosexual, and as it turns out Emil Griffith was. But in 1962, that's not the kind of descriptor you wanted affixed to you, and so in a bloodlust of revenge, Emil Griffith. Kills them in the ring it's quite an episode
7: mm. black male privilege uh my greater question the homo social environment generally it's male dominated sometimes exclusively uh white males certainly exclusively males sometimes though not always made west <laughs> uh But the homoerotic component, and incidentally, if you could, what exactly did Howard Cosell, what did he say about Larry Holmes or to him? You have the footnote for people if you want. The footnote is right here so you can check out Ishmael Reed, Complete Muhammad Ali, page 201, 150. So if you go, I encourage reading, you can go get Mr. Reed's text and see what he said. But what exactly did Howard Cosell say uh, about or to Larry Holmes? Well, uh, as I'm sure you know
8: i mean there there's this phrase that apparently has a backstory, the phrase being the d l or the down low, which oftentimes is ascribed to men who are ostensibly heterosexual but have shall we say another life and According to Ishmael Reed, who is my source, this is not not my research, this is Ishmael's research, Howard Cosell fit that category. And in fact, I dare say that if there's a book waiting to be done, if you can find the detail and the sources, dealing with Euro-American men in particular, who are on the DL and particularly during the era of Jim Crow and segregation, seek to sexually exploit black men by being in these black male venues, such as boxing, uh, for example. Uh, In in fact, when uh, I was a high school student in St. Louis, Missouri, Uh, Some years ago, it appeared that the basketball coach, who was a Euro-American man, a man, uh, could be described thusly as a person who was able to implant himself in this mostly black male venue so that he could sign marks, if you like.
7: I am... uh gobsmacked a bit. Uh, I have read Delectable Negro, so maybe I shouldn't be, but is this like an analysis of this coach that you came to at the time, or is this like hindsight, like looking back and making sense of things? Oh, you mean my high school? Yes, sir.
8: Well, I I think what happens after I graduated, some of my classmates uh, made me aware of this. I mean, I was totally unaware. Um, And now, as we're talking, I'm beginning to one and one together and put
7: two and two together. Donald Ster- Elgin Baylor just passed away. He worked with Donald Sterling. Uh, they talked about him going into the shower uh, with the Clippers before the tape came out and all of that. And he said, Oh, look at these black bodies and total delectable Negro. Uh, I would be stunned if Donald Sterling is the only illustration of this uh, throughout the long history uh, of race. Oh, my goodness.
8: (laughs) Well, here's a tip for somebody who wants to seriously do this research. Um, One of the the advantages of doing legal research is that many of the judicial opinions and appellate cases or very well organized. I mean, you could go to a database that stretches back maybe 200 years and begin to play around with different phrases, just like you play around with Google to, 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 to try to find an answer to something
6: mm-hmm. and
8: type into the dat- database something like uh, male slave rape, for example, or male slave, slave molestation, for example. You probably come up with a number of cases and then that can become the source for your research
7: and for your book or article, as the case may be. Wow. There are many books there, Dr. Horn. You should have one of those. Such a, a prolific scholar. You should, that. Whew, my goodness. So much to be written. Um, I'll get to the man. Folks were so upset last week when I got confused about the date. We had callers Literally we had a black male in Japan who dialed in, you know, the time difference. It was like, I think 5 AM or something wacky. And he said, we stayed up, and set the alarm so we could call him in and ask Doctor Horn a question. I was like, "Oh my God, I'm horrified." Uh, so hopefully he will be with us. He can get questions. But people were furious. Like Doctor Horn had better be here on Monday, Gus. Uh, the number is seven two zero seven one six seven three hundred. The code five six four nine four three pound. Press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, let's see. Henry in Chicago. Uh, I think he was with us last time when you were previewing the Bitter Sweet Science. Uh, Did you have a question for Doctor Horn? You should be with us.
9: Uh, Can I be heard? Yes, sir. All right. Uh, Greetings, Gus, and uh, greetings, Doctor Horn. Uh, Obviously, you probably heard me before. I'm a big fan of your work, and I think this is an excellent book, uh, The Bitter Sweet Science. Another one of your uh, great books. uh, and yeah, I was also mad too and was spewing a lot of anti-black, uh,
2: words
6: <laughs>
9: on Gus, uh, when, uh, when you were on, on, uh, last week. But what's so interesting, speaking of anti-blackness, uh, in your chapter of the Brown Bomber, uh, Swords, uh, referring to Joe Lewis, on page 93, you referenced, uh, Max Schmelling, uh, and Jack Johnson. Uh, because uh, Jack Johnson and Joe Lewis uh, didn't get along, that Johnson uh, uh, helped train Max Schmeling. Can you, can you elaborate <laughs> more on that? <laughs>
6: yeah, it,
9: it, it, it's, it's very unfortunate. I mean, a, a lot of it has, well, some of
8: it has to do with the fact that Jack Johnson understandably and justifiably felt that he didn't get the proper respect. He didn't get his due. I mean, after all, I mean, Jack Johnson was put in jail. I mean, Joe Lewis had difficulties. He wasn't put in jail. Muhammad Ali had difficulties. Uh, he wasn't jailed. Jack Johnson was actually jailed. And then when Joe Lewis began to rise in the 1930s, the line was that Joe Lewis should try to be the anti-Jack Johnson, uh, that he should not be photographed at least or even consort with Euro-American women, although Joe Lewis did seem to have a proclivity for light-skinned black women, for what that's worth, and also that uh, he shouldn't smile when he knocked out a white man, which Jack Johnson tended to do, but then to show you the contradictions of racism and white supremacy, when Joe Lewis didn't smile when he knocked out a white boxer, then it seemed like he was acting like he was a grave digger or martician, for example, which then did not reflect well, according to some, on Joe Lewis. And so I think all of this combined to, in Jack Johnson's mind, to make him a kind of antagonist of, of Joe Lewis. And then, of course, Jack Johnson spent a lifetime in Europe, uh, when he was on the land. Doing say from about 1910 to 1920 before he was jailed other than mexico a lot of time he spent in europe for example and then after getting out of jail he found it easier as many black people have historically to make a living overseas than in the land of his birth and uh, however i think that since jack johnson was a politicized fighter a politicized fighter, perhaps even more than Joe Lewis or even Muhammad Ali. Believe it or not, I think that he might have lived to have regretted his association with Max Schmelton. Okay. Uh, uh,
9: am I am I allowed to ask two more questions? Uh?
7: Uh, if they're concise, mm-hmm. yes, sir.
9: Okay. So uh, in, in your chapter on uh, the Ali regime, on page uh, 210, you talked about, uh, uh, well, you referred to Ishmael Reed's research contending that Angelo Dundee was a uh, spy for the FBI or an informant. And I wanted to know in your research of that, uh, if he was, who was his target? Was it Was it the mob ties that his brother had, or was it Ali himself? Well... See, it's interesting. Uh, Angelo
8: Dundee, for what it's worth, was an Italian American. Italian Americans, as you probably know, have played an outsized and disproportionate role in organized crime circles. And I think it's fair to say that even though he's denied it, that Angelo Dundee had those sorts of associations with organized crime. In one of my earlier chapters, the the chapter – Oh, yeah, the chapter entitled "Gangster Paradise. <laughs> I remember when I was writing that mm-hmm. chapter, I, I was writing it with Coolio on uh, repeat uh, as I was <laughs> writing. Um, you know, you'll, you'll find a lot of detail about Angelo Dundee in the 1950s and his association with organized crime, not to mention his brother, uh, who was a promoter. And so when you get involved in organized crime, it's just like the movie Judah and the, and the Black Messiah. Once you get involved in crime, it oftentimes the authorities come to you and say, look, either you become an informant or you're going to jail. I assume that's what happened with Muhammad Ali. Now, was – excuse me, with Angela Dundee. Now, was Muhammad Ali his specific target? Well, yeah, but I'm not sure – if he got into that just to spy on Muhammad Ali,
9: but I think it became rather convenient. Okay, and and one uh, last question: uh, t- t- you, you mentioned a lot about the, uh, uh, the 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 great white hope in your book, and you know we currently have a heavyweight uh, uh, heavyweight uh, white champion in uh, Tyson Fury. And speaking of homoeroticism, if you saw his last fight. He was actually licking the neck of uh, Deontay Wilder. But yeah. uh, speaking of which, why, why is Tyson Fury not as celebrated as a, you know, white heavyweight champion?
8: Well, that's a good question. I, I, I mean, stay tuned. By the way, refresh my recollection as to
9: where he was born. Uh, I believe he was born in Britain, but I think he's Irish, though.
8: Yeah, well see, that's what I was thinking, and that perhaps because he's not a U.S. national, I mean, if, if you look at the, the so-called Great White Hope, I mean, look at Jerry Cooney, for example, who made a small fortune, even though he wasn't that good of a fighter, you know, his roots were in New York State. And so, I think that because Tyson Fury's not a U.S. national, perhaps he doesn't have as much utility, possibly, as the so-called Great White Hope. And then there's the general decline of boxing, uh, from the heyday of Muhammad Ali, for example. Uh,
10: the, you know, the top
8: fighter right now is a sub heavyweight, I guess you could say. Uh, speaking of Floyd Mayweather, and he helps to engender a fair amount of bitterness and antagonism, but not as much, I would say, as a heavyweight. Uh, because the heavyweight is generally viewed to be the emperor of masculinity, not somebody at 145 pounds.
9: Thank you, Dr. Horn. I'll meet my line.
7: Much obliged, Henry, in Chicago. Let's see, our caller from, I guess you're on the uh, Skype line. Did you have a question for Dr. Horn, caller on the Skype line?
11: Oh, excuse me. Uh, greetings, Gus, um, and greetings, uh, Dr. Horn. Uh, very uh, good to hear from you. Yes, I am. Uh, this is Che calling from Japan, and uh, I'm here with. I've got my son, who's also a young boxing fan, and, and lots of great information. Thank you very much, Dr. Horn. You've given us a lot of homework for further research, things to look into. I just have uh, one question. Uh, I'd like to uh, get your thoughts. I'm also I was surprised with, with the May West connection, and and directly with uh, Jack Johnson. And I was one. I'd like to hear your thoughts on since within the context of boxing being such a, a mark of masculinity and then racial ma- racial black manhood, white manhood, and so on. The uh, involvement of someone like May West, who was the blonde bombshell at the time, and I think you alluded to there being other white women being involved, and then especially with someone like Jack Johnson, who I'm assuming wasn't unique in his own involvement with white women. Uh, what sort of a what sort of a what sort of a, what, uh, effect did that have on boxing and and, and concepts about? Masculine reactions from, uh, white racist men and so on. The involvement between these, uh, these white women being involved with these black men, these black champions, and then the black men themselves also being involved romantically, uh, with white women.
8: Well, as I'm sure you know, uh, that's one of the reasons why Jack Johnson had to go on the lamp. Uh, that is to say that he was accused in a federal crime of transporting a woman, meaning a white woman, across state lines for illicit purposes. And rather than face the music, he went on the lam, wound up in Mexico, wound up in Europe, et cetera, before turning himself in at the beginning, maybe a circa 1919, circa 1920. Now, obviously, these racists took this very seriously because... As you know, the United States is, is a color-obsessed society. And from the point of view of these racists, I mean, you've probably seen these rallies, the Ku Klux Klan, where they would charge that the purpose of school desegregation or an outcome of school desegregation would be to create a so-called mongrel community, mongrel being uh, a product of a European and African Union. And that was seen as being totally beyond the pale, pardon the expression, or, or totally outrageous, something not to be done. And then part of the perks of masculinity, for many of these white racists was that they would have backdoor sexual access to black women, not to mention front door, sexual access to white women or any other woman, and that if black men had similar privilege, then the value of white male privilege would somehow be reduced. So we're obviously swimming in murky waters when we're talking about uh, this kind of white racist pestilence, which fortunately we've gone a long way in terms of beating back uh, but have not subdued it altogether
11: Uh, thank you very much uh gus is it possible i have a slight uh quick follow-up with uh, connected to that question uh be concise yes i'm sorry um it's just that uh is it is there any possible connection? Do you see any possible connection with the, with sort of an inundate, inundation of uh, black champions into the world of boxing, and then as we boxing not being as valued or as important of, of a sport within a, the American context historically? Well, that, that's that, there's probably something to
8: that hypothesis. There's probably something to that hypothesis, except that. As I'm talking, I'm recalling all this money that Floyd Money Meriwether has made,
2: for example.
8: And as I'm talking, I'm thinking about, comparatively and relatively speaking, the box office proceeds that were generated by Muhammad Ali and Larry Holmes and George Foreman, et cetera. Uh, so i would i would have to you know i would, I would have to think about that uh,
11: a bit more carefully and deeply
8: i uh, I take it that that's your hypothesis uh,
11: just something that occurred to me hearing hearing today's uh today's lecture
7: i see much, thank you very much'll i my much obliged our caller in Japan. I felt so bad last week uh before we nap let's see i caller call her last four digits, two, two, six, two, 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 six, two. There were so many tidbits. Is it true? Uh, Dr. Horn, uh, George Foreman, uh, he defeats a white opponent and a white man gets in the ring and challenges him and, and tells him that he's yellow. Did that actually happen?
8: Well, yeah, George Foreman is, is obviously a very, actually George Foreman, as you know, is a native of Houston, Texas. And, uh, has a remarkable record, not only being able to fight at a time when many boxers are safely retired, but also becoming a preacher. Although that's not unknown. Henry Armstrong, we mentioned earlier, after he retires from the ring, he too becomes a preacher. So perhaps we're detecting a trend.
7: Maybe you need salvation after all those years of head injury and gangsterism. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Um, the person the 2262, 2262. Did you have a question for Dr. Horn? You should be with us. May I be hurt? Yes, sir.
4: <clears throat> I think I'm gonna call Gus. Uh, greetings, Dr. Horn. Thank you for coming to speak to us. Um, I just had really one question. Um, uh, are you familiar with the, uh, I guess, I'm not sure if it's true or not, that at one point um, uh, Muhammad Ali the boxer was confronted by the mafia and I guess um, certain individuals stepped in to kind of um, uh, work out a situation where he didn't have to, I guess, take a uh, uh, dive in his uh, matches.
8: Well, one of the points I make about Muhammad Ali is that even though he was exploited like any other boxer was exploited, he probably was not exploited as cruelly or shamelessly as other boxers because he had a, a, he had a team, he had backup, he had uh, the fruit of Islam. He had the Nation of Islam. His manager was Herbert Muhammad, who was a member of the so-called royal family of the Nation of Islam. And that helped to protect him to a certain degree. I compare him to another uh, well-known fighter, the light heavyweight Bob Foster, you might recall, was a real bomb thrower in the ring, a real knockout artist. And yet at the height of his career, Sometimes Bob Foster would have to fight for $500. I mean, Muhammad Ali might leave a $500 tip at a restaurant. And so I think that it was possible for Muhammad Ali to circumvent these overtures from organized crime, which inevitably took place because it's a mob-dominated sport And entertainment industry that's likewise dominated by the mob but because he had backup he was able to do it in run to a large degree around this although of course as you know i mean as you probably suspect or may have heard uh the the man who promoted his fights for the longest don king was said to have close ties to organized crime and in fact As I tell the story in the book, when Don King was catapulted into prominence in Cleveland, Ohio, uh, this was in the midst of a gang war, where a number of Don King's antagonists uh, in organized crime wound up six feet under. Mm -hmm.
4: Thank you uh, for your, um, your response. I just have one more question if I could Gus. be concise. Yes. Thank you. Um, this is just about the, uh, currently in the boxing, um, uh, sport. Do you think that there is a, um, a level of, uh, I guess organized crime still involved and, um, exploiting boxers, uh, to this day, and um, I'm referring to, like, maybe the, uh, I guess, our traditional uh, understanding of what uh, the Mafia was as, like, Italian-Americans or Irish-Americans, things of that sort. Uh, Thank you. I'll mute my line.
11: Oh, sure. I mean,
8: particularly in, uh, I mean, it's no accident, as the historians like to say, that a citadel of the sport is Las Vegas where in some sense legalized boxing began to take off. That is to say in Reno, Nevada, uh, circa 1910, when Jack Johnson uh, is able to overcome the great white hope hype. And Las Vegas, as you know, is a city that takes off after world war two as a challenger to Reno. And, as the movies tell you accurately, it's a city that's basically originated in terms of its wealth by gangsters like uh, Meyer Lansky, for example, or gangsters like Bugsy Siegel, for example. You might be familiar with the movie Bugsy with uh, Warren Beatty playing uh, Bugsy Siegel, and Las Vegas takes off further. When you have the Cuban Revolution, because before one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine and before the rise of the Cuban Revolution, uh, Havana was really the uh, a challenger to Reno in some ways was surpassed by Reno surpassed Reno excuse me, but after one thousand nine hundred and fifty nine all that mob money had to move out, and much of that mob money moved into las vegas and so Right beneath the surface, in terms of all of these uh, bouts, these heavyweight championship fights in Las Vegas, organized crime is lurking.
7: Much obliged, uh, caller, for your response. I think, speaking of Don King, I think we might have uh, our caller in Cleveland. Uh, If you had a question for Dr. Gerald Horn, you should be with us.
12: Uh, Greetings, Gus, and greetings, Dr. Horn. Congratulations on another great work. Um, The question that I had was about uh, the uh, black promoter, a guy I wasn't familiar with, uh, Truman Gibson,
6: Mm -hmm. I think
12: his name name is. And um, just your thoughts in terms of the court case that was used to kind of Precipitate his downfall. Um, I guess. I guess. Just sort of my initial impression was that the whole case seemed kind of flimsy. And was it just he was targeted? Is just basically he was targeted because he was becoming so powerful, or just your general thoughts on that?
8: Well, for those who may not be familiar, Truman Gibson was the 1950s version of Don King. The difference being that Don King, as they say, was paid. I mean, I cite one deal involving Don King's relationship with the Las Vegas billionaire Kirk Corian, where out of one deal, Don King was able to garner maybe $15 million. That was just one, one particular deal. Uh, not necessarily having anything to do with boxing, for example. Truman Gibson, on the other hand, got involved in boxing the late 1940s as Joe Lewis, the Brown bomber was in the process of retiring like many of black people before and since the idea says, well, you know, why don't we just take over the sport? I mean, why should we only be the people in the ring getting our heads beaten in? Uh, Why are not we the people at ringside and the people who are writing checks and picking up the cash? And so quickly, uh, what happens as a result of the intelligence of Truman Gibson, a black American, a graduate of the law school at the University of Chicago, his father being a graduate of Harvard, is that boxing comes into uh, prominence at the same time that television is becoming an appliance in virtually every living room. And so the networks are looking for programming, and Truman Gibson and Joe Lewis provide the programming through boxing. Uh, Boxing is on sometimes two or three times a week in the evening and is a spot where Gillette razor blades and beer can be advertised generating even more revenue other than what people contribute at ringside and other than television contracts but Truman Gibson has to make a deal with the devil or more specifically a deal with organized crime which dominates the sport and that leads to an indictment of Truman Gibson and some of his organized crime comrades and part of the lesson there which is still relevant is that people oftentimes ask, well, why aren't these black people building more businesses and getting involved in the business aspect of these various enterprises? Well, I think it's one thing to develop a business enterprise. It's another thing altogether to have influence in the district attorney's office, influence in the U.S. attorney's office. And if you're building a business, in the United States as a black person and you don't have influence with the people who can bring indictment, you're basically just setting yourself up for a major fall. And that's what happened to Truman Gibson.
2: Uh, He didn't have
8: influence with the prosecutors. And so what happens is that people who wanted to drive him out of the business do have influence. And of course, as he's being prosecuted, the headlines are blaring that with the indictment of Truman Gibson, organized crime influence is going to be driven out of the sport. But what happens is that after Truman Gibson is driven out of the sport and Joe Lewis is driven into being penniless, that another wing of organized crime basically moves into the sport. Basically. That's what happens as Truman Gibson and Joe Lewis are – Set up for the fall, you see the rise of Floyd Patterson of New York via North Carolina and his manager, Cus D'Amato, who, of course, then becomes the manager of Mike Tyson. And, of course, it's no secret that Cus D'Amato has organized crime connections. And then they tried to replicate what Truman Gibson and Joe Lewis sought to do when they tried to move into the business side of the sport.
12: Uh thank you Dr. Horn. Uh, I just uh I just wanted to, to mention that I was at that Chuck wepner Ali fight. You're kidding. Back in the, uh... No. My uh my father at the time I was quite young but uh my father at the time said, well, this is going to be our only chance to see a heavyweight championship fight. So we bought the tickets and we thought, you know, it was was an exhibition. It was supposed to be a benefit for Huff Norwood hospital. And, uh, so we were in the cheap seats and, you know, I, I think, I think we barely saw there was something going on down, down front, (laughs) but, uh, you know, we tried to move down to get a closer look, and you know the usher, ushers, of course, shoot us back. But I, I did not realize the significance at the time that it was going to be the basis for uh, the movie Rocky. But uh, but thanks thanks again for taking my call, and uh, I look forward to your future work.
8: And hey, you're probably lucky you didn't get close to the ring because had a reputation for being a bleeder or
11: some of his blood might have flown into your eyes.
7: Exactly. Woof. All of the grotesqueries of the squared circle. Man, boxing, Neanderthal sports. Uh, Let's see. Uh, Victim in, oh, my goodness, one of the prominent geographic regions of the book, New Jersey. Woof talk about corruption and crime and gangsterism <laughs> a victim of racism in new jersey uh did you have a question for dr horn
9: yes uh yeah, yes i did um how you doing dr horn it's all good i'm good okay um yeah two questions i just wanted to ask you about al Heyman and um you know there's clear racism in boxing you know how how was he able to survive and have such longevity and also, go underprinted, and you know you, you can rarely find photographs of him, or you rarely hear him uh, in the media. And um, my other question will be: uh, Mayweather versus Larry Merchant. Um, how important was that exchange when uh, Mayweather called out Larry Merchant for his uh, bias and suspected racism? towards him and just other black athletes? And was that a missed opportunity to really discuss uh, racism in boxing?
8: Well, there are so many missed opportunities to discuss racism in boxing, the, the one that you cite being just one of many missed opportunities. And Larry Merchant, of course, has a, a very unfortunate record of being accused of racial insensitivity, to use that euphemism. And with regard to Al Heyman, I haven't been able to figure that out myself. Uh, I mean, here, here's a, a brother who rarely gives interviews, and which is very unusual. I mean, c- compare him to, to Don King, for example, uh, who, of course, is oftentimes said that one of the most dangerous places you can be is between a, a camera and Don King for example. Uh, here's a man who, who loved the limelight, who had the gift of gab. And we we really don't know that much about Al Heyman, but I'm, I'm surprised I don't, I don't think that his low profile is an explaining, an, an explicating factor as to why he hasn't been subjected to legal difficulties. It may be because he's sufficiently intelligent to keep
9: his nose clean. What do you think? Oh, no, I, you know, I, I really don't have like any information on him. I just know he, he moves us kind of like, like, you know, not uh, a metaphor a myth, like, you know, you rarely see him. And um, so, you know, I just thought it was just amazing. Especially when you talk about the criminality and the racism and the boxing and um, August, can I just close with this? I've, I've attended, um, to two Mayweather event Mayweather event um, say what you want about that man um, that man is worth everything he has gotten because it, it is it is a sight to see the people and the money that moved that used to move during the Mayweather weekend I went for the Pacquiao and Canelo weekend and I mean it was just ocean of people money moving everywhere so that man is definitely worth everything uh, he gets. Um, so, you know, I'll definitely uh, close with that.
8: Yeah, let, let me add that, you know, Al Heyman, he reminds me of um, Truman Gibson. I mean, he has an MBA from Harvard. Uh, I think he has undergraduate degree from Harvard. Recall I said that uh, Gibson was out of University of Chicago. In addition to being involved on the business level with Floyd Mayweather, uh, earlier he was involved in promoting music acts. Uh, Whitney Houston, Tana Jackson, Mary J. Blige, Rick, Rick James, he, he worked with Eddie Murphy. So this guy is obviously a serious business person. But having said that, uh, as you probably know, serious black business people oftentimes run into legal difficulties. And as far as I know, he has not.
7: Hmm. Floyd Mayweather uh, is quoted uh, in a report. Uh, uh, you can read it. Who is out? Who is Al Heyman published just a few months back? Uh, Floyd Mayweather was recently asked about him referred to Al Heyman as the original ghost in quotes. So maybe that is a part of the business strategy to not draw too much attention. Uh, let's see. The person, I guess you're on the Skype line. Uh, different caller on the Skype line. Did you have a question for Dr. Horn?
3: Oh, yes. Um, hi. Hi, Dr. Horn. Hello. Okay. Hey, sir. Um, I wanted to talk about uh, Mike Tyson. Um, in terms of anti-blackness, um, I, I kind of noticed that Mike Tyson was kind of demonized as a, as a rapist and um, as like an animal. And then I kind of want to compare it with that King Kong, with, with King Kong in the movies and how black males are seen as criminals and animals and rapists. Would you have anything to, to add to that within the boxing sphere?
8: Oh, sure. I mean, it, it's not just Mike Tyson who has had uh, that uh, sort of racism draped around his neck. I mean, to a certain degree, you could say that Jack Johnson was treated similarly. Or it's not even just boxing. I don't know if you recall this cover story that attracted a lot of attention a few years ago that had the basketball player LeBron James and a a kind of, uh, as it was described then, not by myself, as a kind of King Kong pose as he is embracing this Euro-American blonde who seems to be fainting or in the process of fainting. So, you know, look, this this, this is no secret about how U.S. racism, or to use the phrase from, from this program, how white supremacy works, how it functions, that is to say through demonizing and demonizing uh, black men, not least.
7: Uh, Let's see. Much obliged. Uh, Let's see. Our caller in Florida, retired firefighter in Florida. Did you have a question for Dr. Horn? Uh, Let's see. You should be with us as well, sir.
10: Yes, sir. Greetings, Gus. Greetings, Dr. Horn, and to everyone on the line. Uh, two questions. Uh, start off from a historical standpoint, and uh, to hear what you have to say. Uh, could you report to us about what uh, Joe Lewis had to uh, submit to in his in his contract in order to fight for the heavyweight championship of the world?
8: There well, was there, there was, was
10: from my understanding. Go ahead.
8: Well, it's in the book. He had to kick back uh, part of the proceeds from the gate to his opponents and to others as well. Uh, That's the only way he could get a shot at the championship belt. As I recall, it was with his belt with James Braddock uh, in the early to mid-1930s.
10: I also heard that he also had to render to James Braddock uh, a certain amount of proceeds from his future winnings also. Right, right. Uh,
8: and keep, keep in mind as well, I mean, on this theme of being indicted that Joe Lewis's managers also were indicted. I mean, it's, it's not just Truman Gibson, who he was in a business partnership with, um, he also had a manager who supposedly allegedly was involved in numbers running in Joe Lewis's Detroit. And he was indicted uh, as well. I mean, uh, it's it's still, I, I know that Don King has quite a bit of wealth. I mean, spectacular wealth, but I still find it astonishing that he's been able to escape that sort of criminal imprisonment
10: yes i i I came on the program a little bit late uh i did hear about the part where y'all were talking about the 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 lowering of interest of participating into boxing would you think that is because that that boxing has always had the understanding of the possibilities of of uh CTE. What during that time they didn't call it CTE, it was like punch drunk and that sort right. of thing. And also with the team sports, football and basketball, especially for black males, it they, they uh the two sports wasn't accepting uh at one point in time none to uh, very little, but as as it came to where it is now, most of your your heavyweight champions of the world are playing in the NFL and the NBA. Would that sound correct to you? Oh, sure. I mean,
8: look at uh, Charles Barkley in his prime, the basketball player. Yes, sir. Or look at uh, even LeBron James in his prime. I mean, yes, sir. Uh, I mean. I, I, I don't know if this story is true. Maybe one of you all can confirm it. But the scuttlebutt was that the basketball player Wilt Chamberlain uh, once considered uh, going into the ring with Muhammad Ali. But
10: yes, that's after, true.
8: Yeah, but do you know why he didn't do it?
10: I'm not sure. I don't remember.
8: Yeah. But that would have been a meeting. Uh, There's a
10: the, the famous photo of 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 the two squaring off, uh, and and Muhammad Ali with his wit, uh, saying, "Yeah, and uh, I need you to take that take a shave because I don't fight Billy goats." <laughs> oh, I see. I
8: see. okay <laughs> yeah, fair
10: enough. That yeah, typical Muhammad Ali. Mm-hmm. <laughs>
7: Much obliged, uh, retired firefighter. I know, uh, Doctor Horn. You mentioned uh, one night in Miami, uh, which features Jim Brown and Muhammad Ali, others as well. But I think Jim Brown also uh, was rumored that he wanted to fight Muhammad Ali, great professional football player uh, and actor as well. Talking about gangsters in Hollywood, Uh, but I think he ultimately reconsidered. uh, Generally speaking, people who are trained prize fighters not a good idea to fight them Uh, even regardless you can be super strong and all the rest it is very different when that's what you do all day for years and years is trained to hit people you are probably going to be better than at that than anybody else Uh, I think that's why Jim Brown reconsidered like I probably am not as good at this (laughs) boxing thing as Muhammad Ali I'm going to stick to football and acting um yeah masculinity thing that masculinity thing can run wild sometimes um you talk uh, about talk we talked about cte and brain damage throughout the text and you bring that up very early and frequently uh in the text and talking about some of the people who died in the ring and all kinds of injuries and what have you right from the beginning of the book page 24 uh you write boxing Involved battering and ultimately led to the untold damage to the skulls, brains, and bodies of contestants. The analyst Joyce Carol Oates has argued that 87% of boxers suffer brain damage during their lifetime, while from 1945 to 1985, 370 pugilists died from injuries directly attributable to the sport. As early as 1928, one observer detected that the early symptoms of the condition known as being punch drunk typically appear in the extremities with a very slight flopping of one foot or leg in walking, a peculiar tilting of the head, a staggering propulsive gait with the facial characteristics of the Parkinsonian syndrome. Thus, said writer Arthur Mann, any fighter who has fought 50 or 60 reasonably hard fights already is suffering from early degrees of being punch drunk. By 1984, Ali, a reigning symbol of the sport born in 1942, was adjudged by the eminent Dr. Stanley Fawn of the Medical Center at Columbia University to have mild symptoms of Parkinson's Syndrome. He had a reason to know since Dr. Fawn said, I have been his primary physician. Benny Leonard, arguably the premier Jewish American boxer of his era as early as 1924, when he was almost a decade away from retirement, was diagnosed as enduring arthritis of the right thumb with its resultant pain and disability. Perhaps worse was that this serious injury, which would destabilize a hard puncher like Leonard, may even have been worsened by medical practice. It is our unanimous opinion, said an official body, that inadequate treatment is responsible for the present condition. And you have lots of examples. Uh, In the text, just the uh, the barbarity uh, of this sport. Uh, In fact, it was not just pile-driving blows absorbed by boxers that contributed to these maladies. This was a manifestly unsanitary sport, with the promiscuous spilling of tainted blood and other fluids, hacking coughs in the face of opponents, attendants blowing water in the face of fighters from their own mouths, all taking place in frequently smoke-filled venues, all types uh, of health hazards. Uh, I've been saying for a while, like they should get rid of boxing, like totally just the barbarity of this sport. I mean, why do we still have this in 2021?
6: Well, that's
8: a good question. And that's come up more than once. Um, But what happens when you either try to get rid of the sport or even regulate the sport, to make it a a bit more healthy is that powerful economic interests are making a pretty penny uh, from the ravaging done to these boxers, and they are able to lobby effectively to make sure that the status quo remains. However, I think it's possible, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to have to say this, but I think it's possible that because of um, the rise of Mexican boxers and British boxers and Ukrainian boxers and non us boxers, that this might provide an incentive for Congress to do something about the sport, because now you're going after these boxers who don't have U.S. passports.
7: more non white people that would be classified as non white certainly not born in the u s with uh, I guess if you could share with us uh, before we wrap things out uh, the we had Dr. John Hoberman. Uh, on the program and he talked about his book Darwin's Athletes and he talked about a lot of times it can be overblown Uh, we'll say that oh man Joe Lewis he conquered racism and no he died uh, penniless and was totally exploited uh, by the IRS and gangsters and all the rest of it uh, that we can kind of overblow the success of black athletes and he used the term racial theater and you in the book you talk about how uh, pitting a black opponent against a white opponent or later on the bad Negro against the good Negro, how that can get, I mean, Floyd Mayweather, even I think with Floyd Mayweather, when he fought Conor McGregor, you had the same type of environment in my view. We already talked about Chuck Wepner, Muhammad Ali, Jack Johnson, uh, and Jim Jeffries uh, out in the desert. uh, How a lot of these battles that are playing on these racial tropes end up being enormously profitable for the white gangsters involved in boxing.
8: Well, and of course, Muhammad Ali, played upon that theme like it was a base fiddle. I mean, he, he styled himself as a sort of an antagonist for white supremacists who then would pay good money to come see him fight. So hoping that he would get knocked out. Oftentimes he did not get knocked out, but he was able to generate a huge box office. And so Muhammad Ali, amongst other things, was a... A great promoter of the sp- of the sport, up to and including fighting other black men who, because they were not Muhammad Ali, uh, would be seen as a kind of hero. I mean, think of his spouse with George Foreman, and the subtext of the George Foreman fights was a kind of religious war, in the sense that uh, Muhammad Ali was Muslim, George Foreman was Christian, and of course... Religious wars uh, helped to, was a major factor, say, in the 1500s, in terms of helping to generate this present system of capitalism and even these present notions of race and white supremacies that we confront today. Although it was subtextual, but it was still playing upon people's psychology to the point where once again, people were coming to a closed circuit match or to the ring itself to make sure that Muhammad Ali got his comeuppance. But what he oftentimes got was a
6: fat check.
7: Mm. Smart business person, uh, Muhammad Ali. Uh, Interestingly, you write, I guess sometimes, Uh, different black fighters, even though they're being exploited and used sometimes in these racial theater bouts to enrich uh, white promoters and white gangsters, uh, that they will have interesting leanings for different readings. Uh, You write, this is on page 227, the chapter of the Ali regime. Having said that, it does appear that Joe Frazier, he of the devastating left hook beat most of his competitors in leaning to the right. Even Foreman who spectacularly announced the Philadelphian on the canvas in their short-lived contest in Jamaica, raising the specter of a reprise of Liston without the distasteful associations could hardly match Frazier in this regard. Richard M. Nixon termed Frazier a fine guy. This fine guy also had become quite fond of the Philadelphia police and their hardline chief and future mayor, Frank Rizzo, who had a reputation for brutality that made his peers for example the Los Angeles Police Department responsible for two major conflagrations in 1965 and 1992 seem pussy pussyfooted by comparison <laughs> enjoying his own well, I- writing but I thought that was important can you speak to that Dr. Horn
8: well Many many of these boxers, look look, look at Joe Joe Frazier, who you just mentioned. Uh, They were not the most politically sophisticated uh, individuals. Uh, Archie Moore, you might recall, Muhammad Ali said that Moore will fall in four, and he certainly did. But Archie Moore was one of the great fighters of the 20th century, a light heavyweight champion, uh, a man who should have beaten uh, Rocky Marciano, the undefeated heavyweight champion, but... Was not able to. Well, when these conflagrations, these uprisings, urban uprisings erupted in places like Detroit, Archie Moore went before Congress and denounced the black people who were protesting against uh, oppression. But uh, once, it, I think that's what makes Joe Lewis and Muhammad Ali and Jack Johnson stand out to a certain degree. Uh, Because, generally speaking, and underline generally, uh, they did not follow that right-wing path.
7: You did, right. Unfortunately, uh, I guess it depends on your perspective. Uh, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Muhammad Ali, they all were uh, thumbs up for Ronald Reagan?
6: Yeah.
8: Muhammad Ali, some of his – like when he went to Africa, for example, uh, he was trying – To uh, encourage African nations to boycott the Olympics at the behest of Jimmy Carter, the U.S. president between 1976 and 1980, many African leaders refused to meet with him uh, because they thought he was just carrying water uh, for U.S. imperialism. So Muhammad Ali, to a certain extent, stands out for his political courage, uh, but uh, I think it's fair to say that he was far from perfect.
7: Mm. I can't say that either. Uh, I guess the, the last question I would get in, uh, well, one, did. what What are your thoughts? What is the cultural significance of the Rocky franchise? I had a, a short snippet of that at the end. Like, they have a statue of Rocky Balboa, this fictional white pugilist. They don't have a statue of Joe Frazier, <laughs> who is the... Black male, first person to beat Muhammad Ali, heavyweight champion. They don't have a statue to Joe Frazier uh, in Philadelphia, but they have a statue where well, they had a statue to Frank Rizzo, statue to Rocky Balboa in Philadelphia. What is the significance of the Rocky franchise?
8: Well, two words: White Hope. I mean, it, it, it's it, it,
7: since Jerry,
8: gentlemen Jerry Cooney, and these other would be White Hopes could not defeat these black boxes in the ring, at least they could defeat them on the silver screen at least uh rocky balboa could defeat apollo creed on the silver screen and make sylvester stallone a millionaire multiple times over and then be graced with having a statue in the heart of central city philadelphia Uh, it's all fantasy and i guess when you can't confront reality
7: you have to engage fantasy Mm. for nintendo's uh are you familiar with Nintendo's Mike Tyson punch out the video game? do you know what I'm talking about
8: I've heard of it. I've never played it
7: okay I didn't think you I didn't think you would do you know for all the millions that that game has generated? Mike Tyson got fifty thousand dollars uh and he's the Is cover right fifty thousand yes, I should have put that in the book <laughs> the edited version, the edited version. It has been a hoot uh, having you on the program again. Thank you so much for uh, rescheduling and Being patient, uh, I say that all the time, being patient with Gus. Uh, We have discussed uh, Dr. Gerald Horns, the bitter sweet science, racism, racketeering and the political economy of boxing uh, and generated a pretty nice film list as we went along. Um, Thank you so much, Dr. Horn, for hanging out for a bit of your Monday evening. I hope you could get to we should all maybe all of us, we should get to work on researching to write that book on homoeroticism uh, and how some white males have exploited uh, black males sexually over the years. That is prime for a book, as you said. Thanks again, Dr. Horn. Pleasure speaking with you.
8: Same here. Good luck to you.
7: Yes, sir. Thank you. You too. Bye bye. Good evening context of white supremacy who hearing from dr horn again we will take a quick break uh, and then see if folks have any uh final thoughts uh from the discussion this evening reading more important than watching television dr horn's book uh our books plural yes so many of them this is you know one of many uh but he has lots of offerings uh folks can check out uh pick one uh even i think he mentioned a few other extra books we could check out as we go Uh, through the course of the evening anywho uh, we'll be right back quick break context of white supremacy and from
2: the late 1960s after the death of Martin Luther King and the riots and the upheavals and all like this and black people with their fists in there and all like that and trying to stumble and fumble and find their way and get focus, the white supremacists made a blueprint and put it in action and that is I'm going to have these people so confused they don't even know what they started out to do. And by the late 1970s, they had just about completed it. And we've been on that ever since. And you mentioned something very important. They are more comfortable than ever. But see, it's like making gorillas comfortable in a cage or monkeys or pandas. You still got them in a cage, but they are comfortable. See, so give him some bling-bling. It's like giving an animal a brand-new car and training the animal to ride up and down the street in it. And then you stand back and point at the animal. Like one white man said in the late 1950s, he said he doesn't care what kind of car a Negro has. He said he's still a nigger, and when he rides by in a shiny car, to him, it's just a monkey in a car. White people built a car, put a monkey in it, trained the monkey to drive the car, so now you're looking at a monkey in a car. See, but black people don't see themselves that way. But this is how the white supremacists see us, and they are the ones who run our business. And we have to know that, that when they look at us, that's what they see, that that's what they see, that that's what they see. And at a subliminal level, what they see begins to spill over into our brains so that we, at a subliminal level, see each other that way and indirectly see ourselves that way.
7: Context of white supremacy. They called Sonny Liston uh, the king of the beasts. Heavyweight champion of the world. That's how they referenced him. Context of white supremacy. Uh, We'll be here on Thursday for the book club. Jack Olson. Oh man, that's Muhammad. He wrote Jack Olson wrote uh, apparently one of the definitive biographies on Muhammad Ali, um, black is best. That's the name of it. Jack Olson. Uh, but he wrote for sports illustrated, uh, during the late 1960s and wrote about racism in sports. Uh, in addition to eventually writing the book, we are reading last man standing tragedy and triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Uh, we will continue this week, uh, 8 PM Eastern 5 PM Pacific this Thursday, uh, hopefully constructive learning quite a bit about Cointel pro gangsterism all the rest reading more important than watching television much obliged for folks being patient I guess for Dr. Horn being patient uh, and then uh, listeners as well uh, being patient uh, like I said I got confused last week I thought I was just confirming uh, for the program time uh, for last Monday as opposed to us Setting uh last Monday is the broadcast time, but all worked out well uh in the end uh so thankful we could get him on today, and then folks could get their questions and all that in so much obliged uh man, just striving for accuracy will generally do enough, trying to minimize confusion will keep you occupied for many of your waking hours uh I did note uh for the folks who dialed in for uh, live participation I think we had all male callers boxing maybe not the most popular thing with females although we did hear uh, Mae West uh, I think this is certainly this will be a lot more oh I forgot to ask about pictures that was important that was even more important than the Mike Tyson question I wanted to ask him why there are no pictures in this book because so many of these moments are uh, iconic Uh, You know, Joe. uh, Well, yeah, Joe Lewis and Max Schmeling and uh, Muhammad Ali and Joe Frazier and uh, Jack Johnson and Jim Jeffrey. So many of these moments. Um, And there's there's video. There are photographs. Uh, Why he didn't put pictures in the book? Because I think for some of these folks, uh, like I've seen pictures of Muhammad Ali and video and even of him when he was young and all the rest of it. Uh, And Sonny Liston as well. But some of these folks uh, like Henry Armstrong. And Truman Gibson. I'd never seen these people. I'd never heard them before. Like uh that was when I wished I had I had it right there to ask why there were no pictures in the book. I know sometimes licensing and that can make it more expensive or cause problems or uh it can take longer to get something published, trying to get the uh copyrights and everything and and all the rest with pictures. But yeah, I wanted to at least inquire about that failure on my part, should have asked. Anywho. Um Yeah it has I think this book you can learn a lot about racism white supremacy I think it seems like some of the the folks who dialed in some of our listeners uh, have the book have read the book I think you would be hard pressed to read this and conclude that there's some sort of black male privilege for professional prize fighters regard like I don't care who you're talking about like Marvin Hagler, Sugar Ray Leonard, Muhammad Ali, Mike Tyson. I think you would be hard pressed like the sacrifice that you make physically, financially, all the rest of it. Like and I mean, it's rare even that you're going to same thing that applies. Like it's rare for most fighters. You're not going to be Floyd Mayweather, Muhammad Ali. You'll just be someone that nobody knows who gets pummeled to death and they just said flat out boxing is not good for your eyes I don't think that's rocket science for some reason but I mean lots of fighters end up with all kinds of retina damage and just, logic your eyeballs were not designed to be punched sometimes the logic is very easy at any rate uh, they don't really have great penchant that's You would be hard pressed to read this and say, oh, yeah, man, there is some black male privilege for those uh, black prize fighters, Mike Tyson and the like, Joe Lewis. And particularly when you get to see the whole arc of their life after they're no longer champion or even after they retire, whatever they like. You would be hard pressed to talk about some black male privilege. I could be in error. I appreciated that as well with uh, Dr. Horn, even still with all of the books that he's published, and a doctor and all of his credentials still humble. Folks who uh, are with us, any thoughts on what we heard from Dr. Horn, especially the folks who uh, have the book, read the book? Can I be heard? I be heard?
9: Oh, go ahead. retired firefighter.
10: Yes, uh uh two things. Uh, uh one one uh based on some of the things that you were you were stating about uh the uh quote unquote lack of black male privilege. <laughs> uh boxing is known as as far as the the fighters themselves are the least educated educated as far as in grade school to college and whatnot. Uh, of the, of the professional athletes. Uh, a lot of, uh, prize fighters, including a lot of the ones that you, that was talked about tonight, uh, didn't even graduate from, didn't even complete, uh, grade school. Uh, Muhammad Ali had dyslexia. He can barely read and write, uh, that sort of thing. Uh, and, uh, that kind of like contributes to the mistreatment, uh, as far as a witness standpoint, but I have a, I have a white dog, uh, uh, incident if it hadn't already been mentioned, uh, in Kinshasa, uh, Joe, uh Mr. Foreman, George Foreman made the mistake of bringing a huge German shepherd to Kinshasa, Africa, the Congo during the famous fight between himself and and, and Muhammad Ali. Uh, if anybody doesn't know that uh, the German Shepherds were brought to Africa to uh, further uh, press uh, with enforcement uh, the Africans uh, during that during you know earlier period of time, and then here comes Mr. Foreman with with the German Shepherd and that that was one of the things that promoted the uh the famous chant uh that uh the africans had because they thought they thought they thought at first that mr foreman was a white male they didn't know he was a black male until they actually saw him uh but they joined in this chant uh of uh, uh oh, god i forgot the name of that chant they, they was talking about for ali to kill him uh uh, what was the chant? What was the chant? I just can't think of it right now. Maybe somebody else can remind me of it. Uh, Ali, Ali Bumbaye. Ali Bumbaye. That that's, that's what it was. Uh, but, uh, yeah, he, he brought a Belgian <laughs> German shepherd to Africa for that fight. And, uh, yeah, that's, that's all I have to say. Thank you.
7: much obliged uh retired firefighter uh thank you kindly for your patience henry in chicago it seems like you uh read the book reading more important than watching television uh did you get the sense uh of blackmail privilege from some of the pugilists covered in the text
9: <laughs> oh man <laughs> anybody who reads this book and uses uh proper logic would automatically know that this is the opposite. Boxing is the opposite of black male privilege. Matter of fact, uh, in a sport where Dr. Horn talks about being rooted in, in in slavery, you know, where the slave masters used to, you know, uh, have their slaves fight, and you know, bet on it. So, and then, you know, uh, and it was so funny, because that's what I really want to talk about too, uh, in regards to, you know, uh, I guess the the guest that you had talked about, you know, black male privilege and boxing and all the money that they make and reading this, you know, if you just read this book alone, you would get the idea of how many of the black boxers were exploited. I mean, Joe Lewis had, you know, tax problems and was, and, you, know, prob, you know, penniless. Uh, and even, you know, like, even though uh, Dr. Horn talked about how you know Ali was you know protected in the in the, in a sense even he was victim of you know even he was a victim of 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 uh you know of, of the underground world and racketeering to to some degree so yeah and the money that they made in this sport was not really worth what you know what's the what the dollar figures were when you when you consider health and then you consider you know the 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 gate and all the T V revenue that comes in and boxers probably get, you know, not even half of that. So um yeah, this is this is totally the opposite. Matter of fact it's you know it's it's basically it's kind of like a slave sport. So but that's all I have in mean my life
7: slave sport excellent description for boxing like psh, Slave Swiss in uh, I, Invisible Man I think is so great that like he he starts off the tech and grounds it there. The Jack Johnson documentary starts off with that the battle royal like grounding it in that context like slavery. And then looking in the crowds for even now, look in the crowds for who's sitting there. If you watch uh Floyd Mayweather and Conor McGregor or uh Tyson Fury, Deontay Wilder, who's sitting in the crowd. I mean, you might see, you know, Magic Johnson or whatever he is here and there. But generally speaking, it's mostly white people who can pile up at the garden, especially people who can get down close. We had our caller. He said, hey, we up in the super what they call the nosebleed seats chuck wepner and muhammad ali we can't afford to get ringside so we can get up close and be where the grime and maybe they'll bleed on us that type of a thing sometimes they brag about that thing too like i was so close i got blood on my shirt see it <sighs> total neanderthal barbarity uh let's see silent warrior in whoo make sure i get my areas of the world correctly i think he's in norway isn't that right silent warrior norway didn't get it correctly. Let's try that again. Silent Warrior, are you with us in Norway? Yes, can you hear me? Yes, sir.
5: Oh, fantastic, Gus. I've been trying to get a comment in for the past week and something sometimes something is up with the free conference caller. I thought this was really um, interesting um, discussion and I, I went for my notes from the ISIS papers, you know, Dr. Wilson has um, a really good uh, nine-page chapter called "The Symbolism of Boxing and Black Leather," which she wrote in 1982. And in that chapter, she is connect She's making she's connecting the dots in a way that helps to explain why boxing will be why boxing continues to be a popular sport because uh, she's connecting um, boxing with bullfighting in Spain, uh, which we also know is uh, symbolic of uh, fighting the black male, which which had colonized uh, Spain for about 700 years and permanently darkened the complexion of the population. She connects boxing with um, the buffalo soldier, the, the cowboy, the link to lynching and the popularity of eating beef and wearing leather in the system of um, racism, white supremacy. And symbolically, um, it was something very interesting that Mr. Horn said at the end, that if you can't face reality, you go to fantasy. But perhaps he could even more succinctly say, if you can't face reality, you face it through symbolism. And the... The the sport of boxing refers to the number one concern in the system of racism, white supremacy, Um, the power of um, the genetic material residing in the testicles of males, particularly black males. If you look at the boxer's gloves, symbolically, if you look at them, you will see that they do resemble testicles. And uh, the real meaning of boxing is the battle between the testicles in the ring, which is usually a white ring, symbolizing the vagina. In the same way that um American football, you have the upright legs, or in, in basketball practice in America, you have the white net, representing the what Dr. Walton would call the white vagina. So here you have a boxer, holding these symbolic testicles over, positioned over the body and also lateral from their actual testicles. And you, of course you know there's a rule to not hit below the belt and that's not just for physical reasons but also because then you're connecting the symbol with the actual thing that it represents. Uh, Interestingly, in her... um, very short but very um, important uh, chapter. She shows that the winning, the winner of boxing, of a boxing match, is always non-white, because um, usually the the color of the gloves is not white. But also, but the fact that the the gloves are made of leather, and then leather is connected to the bull, and then the bull itself is the, connected to. It's representation symbolically of black males. So regardless of whether you have a white uh, champion, they end up, uh, symbolically, the winner is always a non, is the non-white male. Um, when you talked about people being close to the ring and blood falling on them, so, and that they remark about this, once again, that symbols what is blood but not the carrier of genetic material. So once again, it's the symbol connecting right with the person who is there symbolically to watch this contest um of the balls uh, The true power of man is his genetic essence uh you know there's this uh boxing has so many references um in its speech. To uh, sexuality and to um, genetic um, w- what it really means to be a man <laughs> this is also partly why Rocky is such a uh, important film in the system and also why why he's an important symbol, but also how ultimately he's no he's still it's so fun because it's like Rocky is an important symbol, but yet still, it's just a movie. Whereas Muhammad Ali is always the greatest, and that's that's the real boxer. Um, yes, uh, and uh, one thing I think is would have I would have liked to ask Mr. Horn is what he thinks about the relation between boxing and UFC. Because as it's been promoted, you see, it, UFC has been promoted by white men as the more, as um, a replacement for boxing, for, you know, like the more challenging sport, you know. And in UFC, you can not only box, but you kick and you can wrestle. Go back to Greco Roman wrestling and Homeratism again. Anyway, but it was, I thought that, I think it's, uh, Symbolically rich. Um, I love Wilson, uh, the sport of boxing. So that's all I have to say. Thank you.
7: Much obliged caller in Norway uh, up late or early, I guess, depending on your perspective. Uh, Let's see. Other folks uh, who dialed in, do you all have commentary you wanted to make sure you got in? Questions, thoughts?
12: Can, can I be heard?
7: Our caller in Cleveland said he was up in the nosebleed sections for Chuck Wepner, Muhammad Ali. Incidentally, George Foreman knocked out Chuck Wepner in three rounds. A white man apparently got in the ring and accosted George Foreman, called him yellow and a cowardly nigger, and all the rest of it. Now, I found this astounding. Not because Chuck Wepner was knocked out in three rounds, but because if you go back and see what George Foreman looked, even if you see him in the 90s, like when he's 40s and selling Foreman grills, he looks like, oof, you do not want to be hit by him. If you go back and see him like circa 1971, when, this fight, when he fought Chuck Wepner, like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like, uh... <sighs> He looks like, I mean, like the person you would least want to punch you or if somebody told you you were going to have to have a a physical fight with someone like the worst possible opponent, like I could die. Like if you think like, oh, man, he was mauled to death and killed George Foreman circa 1970 would be the person to do it like to think a regular white man hopped in the ring and jumped in George Foreman's face and <laughs> called him you know count yellow coon and rah, 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 like <sighs> White people are not afraid of black people. And where's the security at? Like can you imagine? <laughs> Caller in Cleveland. Uh yeah, that that
12: Doctor Horn's book is fantastic. Um you know, particularly a person like me who grew up and watching fights and, and that sort of thing. I mean, what struck me about the book is just the dizzying amount of corruption in boxing, which we always suspected, but Dr. Horn has really just put it out front. I mean, the whole – I mean, you can't even believe the records of these fighters. Um you know, who won, who lost. I mean, it's just, it's, it's disgusting. You know, um, I didn't really, it really, the brutality of the sport didn't really was, was brought home to me by my, um, wife, uh, several years before we got together. She was at that Ollie Frazier one fight at Madison Square Garden. And, um, and had ringside seats, and, you know, she's not a sports fan, so she just casually mentioned, oh, yeah, I was at that fight, you know, which got my attention, of course, and she made mention of the fact, and, you know, fighting has always been something I've watched on television. I mean, you know, it's not something I've ever been to any fights except that Wepner one where I was a mile away from the ring, but she said that when they hit each other, Ollie and Frazier, that she, in the first couple rounds, she had never been to a fight, and she was said, you know, I was all dressed up, and she got splattered in blood. She said, my whole dress was just covered in sweat and blood, and she threw up on her date properly and had to leave after the first round, or second round, she said. But that really brought home to me what a just a horrible it is and it, it truly should be banned um it is my thinking
7: wow <laughs> what a story like i don't think that quite trumps dr horn's story about the high school basketball coach but that's a uh, wow like one i was thinking his wife must be like a luminary or something like my goodness <laughs> like how do you get from well a the- very very
12: i don't know how she wound up with me but you know very attractive women in their younger days they can get in places that ordinary fellows like me can never never dream of so it had nothing to do with me but uh you know attractive young women can can uh, get, get taken taken places shall we say
7: no, that's right. Black male privilege. Tell me about it. Uh, okay, so she's front, and then she cuts a fool. All that to cut a fool. Oh, she. Oh, oh. <laughs> no second date for you. No follow up. Like, oh, that is. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she. she just. She just
12: casually mentioned it to me one day. Oh yeah, I was there. You know, because that wasn't important to her. I mean, but you know, obviously we were consumed by Ali Frazier at that time I mean that's all we talked about was uh, the return of Ali so um, but yeah she she said yeah I promptly threw up on my date and we had to leave he wasn't he wasn't happy
7: <laughs> <laughs> I imagine so those were uh, whew, I mean I can't imagine the expense of those tickets like you can think you know Floyd Mayweather uh, Conor McGregor uh, type expense like what that was billed as the fight of the century uh between two undefeated uh heavyweights heavyweight champion versus heavyweight champion literally um Bill Cosby was there. Uh uh Woody Allen was there. Anybody who was anybody uh was at that the Dinah Ross was there. Dinah <laughs> Ross. <laughs> Beat him to it. Beat him to it. Uh but yeah that was the event uh and for her to be there and cut a fool my goodness but then the brutality that's why i said like that should be thought about like people pay like that's part of what the money is for like yes i want to be close enough maybe somebody will you know their brain will fall in my lap during the fight you know they'll get knocked out of the ring i have a few teeth that i can take home as a souvenir you know i, I mean what? all of that is white supremacy culture if we were not in a system of racism if we were in a system of justice we would I mean what in the world like are you serious I'm going to pay money to have blood and sweat splashed on me and think that this is a good time how is that humane (laughs) ghastly they had that scene from uh, Planet of the Apes where they take Cornelius to a boxing fight and he just looked uh, beastly beastly <laughs> he can't even he can't even that's the way that it should be like what a disgrace in every sense slavery slavery slave culture white supremacy culture can uh, i be heard again? Uh, re- retired firefighter yes sir
10: yes uh I, I i did hear a conversation on the uh on the Ali, uh, God. Frazier. Uh, the fight. No, not Frazier, but the the big white guy who, who used to Webner. bleed a lot. Uh, yeah, Chuck Webner, the Webner-Ali fight. Sylvester Stallone, racist suspect, uh, from my understanding, was at the fight. And the Rocky series, I guess it's up to something like Rocky 11 by now, the Rocky series that he uh, concocted from that, uh, was based on that fight. To whereas Chuck Wepner actually went through the process of suing him to try to get to try to get some money. Uh, Stallone, uh, being slick, uh, uh, to try to calm uh, Wepner down, uh, invited him to become a part of his uh, movie series. But according to Mrs. Sloan, he said that Mr. Webner didn't qualify <laughs> as, an, as an actor. <laughs> but uh, that's where he got the idea from, was the Ali-Webner fight. He, uh, quote, unquote, him being the the uh, fictitional uh, Chuck Webner. Uh, one last thing, as far as violence is concerned, the, the, the level of it, a good example of it, unfortunately, was in Miami, Florida, and I think it was something like 1962. One of the greatest fighters of all time, Emil Griff, Emil Griffin, uh, was fighting a, uh, another non white black male by the name of Bernie Perrette. Uh, I think he was from Cuba. They had a lot of Cuban fighters, black Cuban fighters that was, uh, at, at, up at the Fifth Street Gym where Ali trained at. Uh, in the pre fight, uh, you know talking and whatnot that sort of thing uh Barrett would start would start teasing Mr. Griffith of being a homosexual uh uh there is some there it has been some some had been some talk about him being a homosexual that sort of thing, and he kind of kind of like made a teasing of it in the pre fight uh 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 you know, jibber jabber that that fighters do still today, and and over a course of time, when he got the opportunity to in the real fight, he literally beat Mister Parrott to death in the ring. In the ring, actually, you, you can see it. You can see it on YouTube right now. That that's that's an example of. Uh, of I mean, fighting to me is not even a sport. Actually, <laughs> it's not. It's not. Not even a sport, not my definition, but I would just have to give an example of
7: it. That's it. Dr. Uh, Horn, he talked about that tragic incident, uh, disgraceful uh, incident with us this evening. Uh, Any other folks comments? They wanted to make sure they got in. Can I be heard? I think that was Henry in Chicago. Yes, sir.
9: Yes, uh, speaking of Chuck Wettner, I, I made a note of this in the book. It was on uh, 264 and 265, where uh, Ali was, uh, in his fight with Westner he said that Ali was accused, of, Ali accused him of throwing rabbit punches or blows to the back of the head or the base of the skull when he retaliated in kind. But what Ali said to the referee, Anthony Perez, reprimanded him without rebuking the originator of the foul practice. Ali then slurred the referee, calling him a white motherfucker, and Wetner was addressed similarly. And so it goes on, but apparently Webner had sued Ali because he intended to kill Webner. And the end of the, uh, par- you know, the last uh, part of the last sentence of the paragraph saying that Webner, uh, leading to his unveiling lawsuit to collect $20 million from Ali's coffee. So I thought that was a real interesting and – and I and I, I had so many things I wanted to ask Dr. Horn. That was one of the things that I wanted to discuss with him about. But I thought that was interesting.
7: So that's all I had in my life. That Chuck Wettner guy is uh, litigious likes to uh, take people to court and see if I can extract a few dollars. If I can't get a W (laughs) on you in the ring, I'm going to at least see if I can get you in front of the judge and get a ruling on you. (laughs) like uh, Bayon Bleeder. Right on. He must have good attorneys. White man. Uh, I did think uh, the, because I have crusaded one, I've said football should be outlawed, right? I've said that for a long time. Uh, Basketball, excuse me, uh, boxing as well. Uh, And I've said that parents attempted uh, black parents should not have their children right in high school athletics, football, all the rest of it. Dr. Horn's commentary about the high school basketball coach. Think about that long and hard. I thought that was one of the most important portions of the discussion and particularly put that in greater context. Like I said, Donald Sterling or uh, Jerry Sandusky. Lots of different contexts in which that can be uh, presented. But I mean, if you think that that is isolated, you are mistaken. And even Dr. Horn saying he was putting one and one and two and two together even thinking back on it this wasn't something unless I misunderstood I didn't get the impression that he had this understanding at the time like this was common knowledge like whoa stay away from the basketball coach like yikes do not no shot in fact don't even get on the team super dangerous like forget it go to it if you really got to play basketball switch schools like danger like I don't think that's the way he explained that I think he said it was kind of after some people told maybe some victims told him Man, watch out for that guy or whatever, whatever. and then think, like, oh, maybe that was what he was doing. Let me put myself in a space where I will have easy access to sexually abuse black males, black male privilege, and then no one will even think the wiser. I've got my whole scheme laid out. Is he on the DL? Did you hear it on the DL? Whole body of study. Did folks have any commentary on that, or was that just me who thought that was super important? Could I add something to that?
10: I think I missed
7: that part. <laughs> I thought that was super important. I thought that was super important. Did you have a brief comment, sir? Um, no,
3: I just wanted to like when um when the gentleman when the doctor was talking about Howard Cosell and and uh, Sugar Ray Leonard and talking about their bodies and then it was just. Delectable Negro all the way, and just the just the fact that black males are sexualized as 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 being things things to be played with. That that it, it kind of creeped me out actually. That's just the point that I want to talk about.
7: Perhaps even go back and rewind if folks missed it. If you have uh, children and they're thinking about being in athletics maybe they don't have to listen to the whole interview like they're not into boxing and ah, I don't want to listen to this Dr. Horn guy okay just fast forward and just play that part where he talks about his high school coach and then maybe show him Jerry Sandusky Donald Sterling they don't have to hear the whole audio of Donald Sterling just let them read where he talked about Ooh, look at those delicious black bodies naked black bodies in the shower mmm and just give them something to to think about or maybe you too because i guess a lot of parents don't think of that i wasn't you know that wasn't my my thought process but i mean the way that he explained it like to deliberately put yourself in this sort of position where you can take advantage of, didn't terry cruz say that black male hollywood he was molested white guy I think he said that might be ripe for study. You could go in the archives and search like a uh, male slave rape. Sodomy male slave and just see what comes up in the records. Ripe for research investigation. Many of the aspects of white supremacy, racism do not get discussed. I would say that is one right. Put that in your black male privilege uh, stocking or what have you. Uh, oh, I gotta in fact I have to get the uh, Ishmael Reed reading is more important than watching television I think his commentary about Howard Cosell is in a biography on Muhammad Ali so that should not be like difficult to uh, find I'm not a scholar on Uh, Ishmael Reed's uh, scholarship but he's a black male. Uh, I suspect it might be something that's available on YouTube or maybe even at the library uh, once all that opens up again. But Did did I miss it? We only had one person who heard that thought that was important. Maybe nobody else thought that was too important. Just me apparently. I just missed out on it. I, I didn't hear it at all. So Right, that that's totally legit. People, you know, get tied up in things. Other things happen and such. Uh, did the caller in Cleveland? Did you have something, or were you just listening?
12: Uh, no, I thought that was a very revealing, um,
7: and I I appreciated
12: uh, Doctor Horn's being candid about it. Um, you know, I thought that was a, a very important comment. And, uh, certainly parents would be very important to, to, uh, process that. Absolutely. You know, coaches are held in such high esteem that, uh, you can see how a predator could, uh, take advantage
7: of it. Absolutely. And especially when you have, uh, this is a young person. Muhammad Ali was like in his uh, late teens, early twenties at the beginning of his boxing career. Same thing for Mike Tyson. So these folks, their brain computer has not fully uh, developed. Uh, it's not like, you know, and as uh, I think that was retired firefighter said, it's not like we're talking about folks who are valedictorians, racism, white supremacy, uh, deliberately prohibiting them from getting quality education. So it's not like they're super informed and people are looking out for their best interest. It's the exact opposite total position to be exploited, taken advantage of in every type of way. So, yeah, it's. Man, I'm trying to be uh, Ishmael Reed, the complete Muhammad Ali. I'm trying to see if I can uh, find like exactly what does he have to say about uh, Howard Cosell? And like, what did he say about uh, Larry Holmes? Like, yeah, because I'd never heard that. I'd never heard e- anyone even mildly suggest that Howard Cosell, uh, delectable Negro, uh, is is feasting in some sort of sexual way on all these black males. Uh, that he's covered uh, for decades. Uh, that lots to learn about white supremacy, racism. Any other comments or folks could? uh
9: One one brief thing, uh, you know, I just I just were reminded about the and we talked about this in the book about homoeroticism in in boxing. And one of the things that came to mind was uh, during a weigh-in when Mike Tyson was still fighting. I guess he got into an argument with somebody who screamed in the crowd. And he turned around and threatened the guy, talking about, you know, I'll you know I'll fuck you until you love me, faggot, and that type of thing. So uh, I thought about that. And Mike Tyson has also said some other homoeroticism type of things, too. I think he was uh, on a conference call with one of the boxers on ESPN talking about he'll kiss him in his lips and stuff like that. So uh, I, I thought about that as well, but, you know. Mike Tyson, victim of racism, probably traumatized, too. Uh, wouldn't be surprised if he got raped, you know, in his younger years or something. So but uh, that's all I have.
7: May I add to that? Reading is more important than watching television. Whew. So I got the Ishmael Reed quote. Let's see. You can you can add. Just let me. uh, uh OK. A tall black man who wore a white cotton jumpsuit and white beret beckoned me. He introduced himself as Muhammad Ali's pedicurist and showed me photos of him and Ali and Ali's feet. When I finally contacted Ali's office, I was told that he was not available for an interview because of a book being written by one of his daughters. He was under contract not to give any interviews. Though a few black authors have written books about Ali, it's usually been a white male writer's club like Jack Olson. The Ali scribes have had full access to him, traveled with him, visited his farm. Some members of the Ali scribes got even closer than that. One even boasts that he slept in the same bed with him. David Kindred writes I took off my shoes and put myself under the sheets with the once and future heavyweight champion of the world the passage ends with Kindred commenting on the salt. Oh my god are you serious Woo! the passage ends with Kindred commenting on the size of Ali's penis and how many hotel owners wives with Miss Sunny after his death I called Larry Holmes office every day for a while only to get the runaround. in his book against the odds. Holmes writes about how close Howard Cosell got to him. He says that on two occasions, a drunken oh, white men and alcohol white men. And, uh, he says on two occasions, a drunken Cosell approached him in Las Vegas, rubbed his thighs and panted about how much he'd like to make love to Holmes. Ah. I'm going to stop right there. This is in uh, Ishmael Reed's Blackmail: The complete I just said Muhammad Ali has been on my mind. I just said that. I watched uh, one night in Miami. Uh, Ishmael Reed's The Complete Muhammad Ali. Uh this is on page one hundred forty nine to one fifty that I just read from the complete Muhammad Ali Ishmael Reed. Woo Dr. Wellsing moment as well. Yikes. Uh Silent Warrior I did hear you.
5: Wow. That was um I was interested. I've watched a few of the. I've been watching a few um, boxing clips on YouTube um, the past week, and uh, I've noticed that, um, you know, I've seen some of these Howard Cosell interviews with Muhammad Ali, and you you see this, uh, um, this uh, you know. It's obvious that the the, the reason why it was publicized so much was for some sense of connection between Cassell and Ali, and you can just imagine now that uh, white males watching interviews like that would be living through Cassell, would be put you know projecting themselves through Cassell and seeing that they themselves could get that close to Ali, um, and now you. You've revealed this information about Cassell, um sexually. I mean, that's essentially a sexual assault to um, approach a black male like that. Tell him yeah. But it, it makes you also wonder what the abuse that Mike Tyson um, received while he was being trained by Cosell matter like he went there as a young teenager, eight of them lived in his house uh, what uh homoeroticism might have happened then, if not between course but with the other um, white trainers underneath course um, remember this is a boxing is symbolically rich. And uh, if we want to get rid of boxing, we have to get rid of the system of racism, white supremacy um, i think I think that's the once we get rid of that, boxing will fall. Uh, we have a very, very useful, very constructive discussion I connecting quite a few thoughts. Thank you very much I, I will need to, I will be adding delectable Negro to my reading list.
7: mute myself mandatory can i be heard mandatory rethinking rufus i think should be there too like rethinking rufus the man not delectable negro put those three together there, and there's allegedly a second footnote in the same vein as what i just read in this book i'm just trying to see if i can find that one before we go off the air uh retired firefighter
10: Yes. Also, Mr. Cosell was crafty enough as a white male. He was one of the only white male uh, reporters of his magnitude to acknowledge Muhammad Ali's right to object to Viet- the Vietnam War. And that gave him his place, quote unquote, to to be able to uh, uh, have these uh, exclusive inter- interviews with him, uh, you know, I mean, at almost any time he wanted, uh, because of that, I, I, I don't, I, I don't, I don't know about his sincerity, uh, based on what the the type of white people that's been coming on the cows of their sincerity, but he used that, you know, he's one of the few white male reporters that that gave Muhammad Ali that kind of,
0: uh,
7: leverage, so to speak. Yes. He think I think he also uh was pretty quick to recognize Muhammad Ali as by the title that he wished to be called. Uh so I suspect that was probably a problem That's correct. as well. That's correct. So Yep, yep, yep. I did I do have the book. I'm just trying to make an effort to match up the pages here so I can kinda get a sense for where uh this is in the text. Uh Okay. I'll see if I can locate it before we go. It should be around. I'll just see if I find anything of of note uh, in the space where it sh- Oh, they have pictures in the text as well. Ollie. Hmm. Uh, again, we should be here on Thursday for the book club. Ah, this is one of those. Oh, I think it's. Yeah, I'll see if I can get the uh, other version of the book to make it a little easy. we'll we will be here for the book club on Thursday. Uh, Last Man Standing Tragedy and Triumph, uh, Geronimo Pratt. <clears throat> uh, and then we'll be here for Neutralizing Workplace Racism uh, this Friday. Whew, I cannot believe it's April. cannot believe what a uh, wacky, crazy uh, year it has been, but trying our best to get through things as best we can a lengthy list of films. He mentioned one night in Miami, I didn't get to ask him what he thought of the film. If he thought it was constructive or whatever, as I said, I thought that that was a constructive film. Uh, It seemed to have uh, the main message being, what is your life supposed to be about in a system of white supremacy, racism? Uh, If you, whatever skills or talents you have, what is that supposed to be about? Uh, Let's see. I think, let's see. let's see Mm -mm -mm oh one I think I have the correct footnote let's see Mm -mm -mm -mm. okay let's see let's see let's see what they write Uh, after Reverend Jesse Jackson arrived at Quincy's apartment he and Quincy and his entourage disappeared in Quincy's office meanwhile guests began to arrive for the book party margaret changed clothes as her sisters continued to prepare the food herb Boyd was ready to be interviewed he is a prolific writer as well as former editor and one of the web pioneers with black world today online he not only writes about civil rights but also is an avid sports writer when i called to set up our interview i reached his cell phone he was at madison square garden receiving an award i asked him about the claim that was made that ali was the heavyweight sugar ray robinson robinson having been described as pound for pound the greatest fighter of all time though henry armstrong might disagree when he fought robinson armstrong complained that robinson was afraid of him and ran however however robinson received the decision i next asked him about sugar's bisexuality he replied there is a little about his bisexuality in this book Edna May's biography that was coming from Boudini Brown who apparently walked in on a situation where Sugar Ray Robinson was in bed with another man. This was reported to Edna May Robinson, ex-wife of Sugar Ray, and Edna May put this in her manuscript. Edna May left a 375-page manuscript. It was never published. She could never get it published, so her son gave it to me. She has things in her autobiography that Sugar does not have in his. Now, who in the hell knows what the real deal was? But I say, you can take your choice. This is what Sugar Ray had to say and what Edna May had to say about it. Let's see. Mm-hmm,
6: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, is there more?
7: Doesn't really go into any more detail uh about the homoerotic or homosexual component. Uh, but it just would not surprise me at all uh to be in that position where You've got all of these gangsters and racists uh, who can take advantage of you and are taking money from you and can take your life uh, or stop you from fighting whatever they want to do. They have various ways of controlling you to extract whatever they want. There's tons of examples of white men extracting sexual favors from black females uh, throughout the history of white supremacy, racism. Why do we think this would not be happening with black males? Uh, all this is in uh, the complete Muhammad Ali. Ishmael Reed. Blackmail. uh any last comment before we wrap up folks satisfied be here thursday grant folks heard? are uh i did hear somebody i'm not sure who that was hello can i be heard oh yes sir caller in japan oh, I...
11: yes uh great program gus um this i'm um... This, uh, this homoerotic aspect, I think this, uh, it, it adds another dimension to the, the Jack Johnson and his, oh, his thing with the, the his tragic arrangements, his obs- sort of obsession with that, and, and obviously the big backlash. More than just fear of genetic annihilation. Now that you put it in this perspective, it sounds like basically like white men feel like jilted lovers that, that Johnson is consort, and then May West, and you know, like they just I see jealousy in that. And I just that's really that really hit me hard from this, this part of it. I just wanna mention that. Thank
7: you. Could be. Could be. Um yeah, the May West component too, she her hankering for dark male bodyguards, so called and the displeasure uh that called. Could be jealousy, different form of so called penises penis envy, particularly given what we heard. Uh, the white male admiring the penis of Muhammad Ali. Now, even think about that. Like, I don't know how you feel about it now. There is no white man in the known universe. I would be cool with them hopping in bed with me. You all can reverse it for uh, non-white females. If there's a non-white female that you want to be in bed with you are heavyweight champion of the world or aspiring heavyweight or what have you and you have a white man who presumably is not someone you've known like all your life some reporter or what have you and he can be close enough to be looking at your penis black male privilege I think we talked about before system of white supremacy black people are often in positions where they are not able to say no that is one time, white person, white man, white woman, asks to see your penis. N-O. Heavyweight boxing champion, or soon to be, and apparently can't even say no to that one? <sighs> Black male privilege. We will be back uh, Thursday. Last Man Standing, Tragedy and Triumph of Geronimo Pratt. Reading more important than watching television, you should have a whole lot of reasons. Find another means for your child to get exercise other than organized sports, heaven forbid, boxing, uh, but <laughs> any of the rest of it. Like Man, sit down and listen to what Dr. Horn had to say about his high school basketball coach. Sobriety would be best. Man, drunken Howard Cosell (laughs) propositioning Larry Holmes. And again, Larry Holmes is huge, the Eastern assassin. What? (sighs) Blackmail privilege. In addition to being and what if Larry Holmes hadn't been sober, hadn't been able to think clearly? (sighs) In addition to being sober, If you got to go out, be alert, be very mindful of what's happening around you. Uh, It's not a time to just be, you know, mindlessly, recklessly roaming about. It's been shootings every minute, shenanigans, protests, you name it. Uh, Be very alert, not a time for confronting people, uh, random strangers and some sort of verbal confrontation. They might be armed. They might have comrades with them who are armed. If you did not leave your residence, prepare to kill and die. Exit. That's what you should be doing. Uh, If you got to go out, you're sober, you're buckled. If you're driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, We need all of our attention. And we're trying to minimize contact with the Derek Chauvin Mark Furman's of the known universe. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time. We are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cow signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
0: Nigga, you're so brainwashed. I'm a victim, brother. problem.
7: You're a
0: victim.
10: I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my
0: condition.